TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm your host, a player named Dan Schmidt. Aw, yeah. And with me to make this podcast as smooth as sex, Bird Guster, is a guy who's willing to hug the ladies across the airwaves. My co-host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. Unfortunately, I am not able to do awesome voices like Dan. (laughs) On this week's episode, Andy will be joining us as we review the season finale of Once Upon a Time. Then it will be Dan and I for the rest of the show reviewing the finale of Castle, continuing our coverage of Game of Thrones and Psych, covering the finale of Supernatural, the finale of Big Bang Theory, and the season finale of Doctor Who. We will also round things out with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on Simpsons, Family Guy, How I Met Your Mother's finale, Revolution, Defiance, Arrow, and Grimm, many of which were also season finales, but we'll also cover much more. Yes, we will. But first, we've got a new section that will get you excited about some things from the past coming back and a little teary-eyed about something we really enjoy here, Good ATA coming to an end. So take it away, Nico. Sci-Fi renews Warehouse 13 for a fifth and final season. After a sizzling start that set viewership records for Sci-Fi and a few seasons of being the network's top show, the warehouse is closing for good. Sci-Fi has renewed Warehouse 13 for a fifth and final season that will run for only six episodes to wrap up the series in 2014. Warehouse 13 is currently in the second half of its fourth season, with the finale set to air later this summer. After regularly breaking 3 million viewers and network ratings records in its first season, Warehouse 13's fourth season has settled into well under 2 million viewers, with the most recent episode hitting a series low of 1.27 million viewers. This surprises me because I've loved this fourth season. At least with this abbreviated fifth season, we'll get the ending to this great show that it deserves. I'm just surprised with this because a lot of people are fans of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if April is a rough time for them to come back to it, but I don't know. I feel like cancellation is a little drastic for that. Well, the problem is that they go on these huge six-month hiatuses, and that's the network's issue. It's not the show's issue. So it's really the network taking a product and saying, oh, they'll do whatever we want, and we can put it on whenever we want, and the people will come back. Well, the people didn't come back. And it's not because they didn't love the show. It's because they forgot about it, or they didn't remember it was coming on, or they haven't been watching sci-fi because you canceled alphas, you canceled uh, everything, and they were like, what am I going to watch on that network? I don't like reality television. So with Defiance coming and being strong, I'm kind of hoping that with Defiance being so strong that maybe Warehouse gets a huge return after people realize it's back on. 
yeah me too it's kind of what i'm hoping for i'm not sure because it's it's kind of unfortunate and i really hope those actors the best because what they do after warehouse oh yeah because they're all very good i mean some of what we've seen before but for the ones we haven't i wish them well with that yeah tnt greenlights michael bay's the last ship starring eric dane and adam baldwin this could be fun. TNT has ordered to series The Last Ship, a thriller drama based on the William Brinkley novel and executive produced by filmmaker Michael Bay. The series follows the fallout of a global catastrophe that nearly decimates the world's population. Among the few survivors are the crew of the Navy destroyer USS Nathan James, which is now summoned by the new president of the United States to do whatever possible to abate the crisis. Eric Dane from Grey's Anatomy stars as Captain Tom Chandler, a career Navy man who lords over the Nathan James, while Tracy Middledorf from Boardwalk Empire plays his wife, Darian. Adam Baldwin, we all love from Chuck and Firefly, yes. plays Slatery, the ship's second in command who occasionally clashes with Chandler over the best course of action. And Rana Mitri from Strike Back is Rachel Scott, a strong-willed paleomicrobiologist assigned to the Nathan James to investigate what caused billions of deaths worldwide. The last ship's opening salvo of 10 episodes will launch in 2014. So this is a TV series? Yes. This is a miniseries. Cool. No, it's going to be a full series just with a 10 episode, which is pretty standard for first seasons of cable television. It's going to be a TNT new series, 10 episodes to kick off that first season sometime in the spring of 2014. This would go very well with Falling Skies. Very much so. Very much so. It's in the very sort of post-apocalyptic setting, so definitely. Yep. Enrico Colatoni set for Veronica Mars' movie. Yes. Veronica Mars' P.I. Pop is officially on board for his daughter's big screen debut. Enrico Colatoni will reprise his role of Keith Mars when the movie based on the fan-favorite CW series begins shooting this summer. Colatoni joins his former castmates, Kristen Bell and Jason Doring, who have already signed on for the project. The Grassroots movie has raised nearly $6 million thanks to pledge-happy fans who wanted to see the tiny blonde back in action. This is great news for one of our favorite actors here at ATA, because now he's going to be on the big screen. Well, and also it wraps up his plot line, yeah. which had a major cliffhanger at the end of the show. Yeah. So thankfully, that's great. To be honest, I'm going to have to go back and watch the series or season three just to remember exactly how they wrapped everything up you know i think everyone's gonna have to see the finale episode again oh yeah because there's a lot of loose ends in that episode that i'm hoping the movie will cover well everybody thought it was going to get picked up for a season four uh, or that you know yeah jump forward in time that they had sort of teased us with you know yeah. and so i was really disappointed when it didn't come back even yeah, though that- i was late coming to it and only watched it when it was in its last season but i had gone back and watched the first two seasons in like a week <laughs> it was yeah good you know that was when cw was an early network yeah because they had found themselves yeah i think it would have been a different story if that situation happened today agreed sarah shahi joins person of interest as a series regular for season three along with rico and colantoni uh no news on that that would be great yeah. You know? <laughs> CBS is making a couple of notable moves with Person of Interest this fall. After yeah. airing for two years on Thursday at 9 p.m., the show is moving to Tuesdays airing at 10 p.m. after two other CBS hits, NCIS and NCIS Los Angeles. And on screen, you'll be seeing a lot more of Samantha Shaw. Yes, Sarah Shahi will be joining Person of Interest as a series regular for season three. Shahi was introduced in a recurring capacity in season two as Shaw, a very formidable Marine turned badass terrorist hunting operative. This is also good news 
moving in behind NCIS and NCIS Los Angeles, you can't ask for a better lead-in. Those are two yeah. of the most watched television shows on any network, but on CBS, those are you know huge powerhouses. NCIS being the largest watched television show across any network and NCIS Los Angeles not dropping off that much, maybe 5 million. But when you're talking 20 million to 15 million, that's an amazing, <laughs> you know, so I think this will boost person of interest numbers. I would have preferred a sandwich because I think person of interest is a better show than NCIS LA, but that's just me. That's true. But I <laughs> think it, it plays well at the 10 PM slot. Yeah. So it won't be hurt by being in that because it can be action packed and everything that you expect in that 10 PM slot, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily get gruesome. Like they kind of reserve for that, but neither does NCS or NCS Los Angeles. So that, I think they're thematically going to be very good because they're three, three shows that have very similar thematic ideas running through them, you know? Yeah. So I think it's going to be a good move for person of interest. I'm looking forward to that. It'll save my DVR some pain on Thursday nights. <laughs> That's true. TBS and TNT to offer live streaming 24-7. TBS and TNT are set to become the first national entertainment networks to stream on-air content live across multiple platforms 24-7, including through the network's websites and a pair of newly created Watch TNT and Watch TBS apps. The announcement was made during TNT and TBS's annual Upfront presentation this week in New York. Starting this summer, subscribers will be able to watch TBS and TNT Live anytime, anywhere on multiple devices, Steve Coonan, president of Turner Entertainment Networks, told the Upfront audience. Tablets and smartphones become television sets, bringing new opportunities for us and our advertisers. TNT and TBS will begin their live streaming just as both networks are in the midst of their summer programming, which for Very TNT smart. includes Rizzoli and Isles, Falling Skies, Major Crimes, Perception, Franklin and Bash, and newcomers King and Maxwell, The Hero, 72 Hours, and Cold Justice. TBS's summer lineup includes the second season of the sitcom Sullivan and Son and the new series Dion Cole's Black Box and Deal With It. The TNT and TBS live streams will be available at www.tntdrama.com and www.tbs.com, as well as through the network's newly created iPhone and iPad apps with additional platforms added by the end of the year. So right now it's going to start out iOS exclusive, but it will be going to Android and Windows phones later in the year. And maybe even gaming systems. Uh, Probably, absolutely. Yeah. The free Watch TNT and Watch TBS apps will be made available just prior to the live streaming launch. To watch the live streams, viewers will be required to log in using their cable yep. satellite provider account information. So you will still need to pay for cable to use these services, but it will mean that while you're out and about, you could be watching TNT or TBS. It's kind of interesting, and I do hope more cable channels begin doing this. I think it'll help them in the future for the new model. Yeah, definitely. Going, yeah. And eventually, they will get smart and realize that these should be available over the internet for a small subscription fee yes hannibal may find new life on cable if nbc doesn't renew so that's where it should be yes nbc's new serial killer drama hannibal is in a rare position the network headed into upfronts without making a decision on a renewal as we've been reporting this is the week that the major television networks preview their upcoming 2013-2014 lineup for advertisers and the press so the bulk of the programming lineup cancellation and renewal decisions have been made often cancel shows are shopped around to other channels or networks as is the case with abc's happy endings and body of proof hannibal premiered with decent ratings 
ratings, and it looked as though NBC would likely renew it. But the ratings have since dipped, putting it on the bubble for cancellation. For a variety of reasons, including its international co-financing, the network has not yet pulled the plug on the Brian Fuller-created series. They haven't picked it up for a second season either, though. There may be some outside interest in the show if NBC does not renew it, including at least one cable network and Amazon, who currently streams the show after it airs. Amazon is, of course, making a big push into original programming, so this might be a series that we'd be looking at strongly. The series isn't officially being shopped, but fans may be pleased to learn that it looks as if there's hope for Hannibal yet, even if it's not on NBC. We will keep you updated as details emerge because this is an interesting move if possibly this happens because it'll mean that shows that get canceled on network may be starting to show up on other channels and other formats immediately and not after a multiple year cancellation. Does NBC own a premium channel? Premium? I think that, are they part of the stars? I don't know. Package? I, I don't remember which one they are. Cause I know Showtime's owned by somebody, HBO's owned by yeah. somebody, but I, I don't ever remember which ones. Are Cause that's what I would say. I just say NBC should hold on to this for one of their other networks. So they're still making money off of it. Right. I, I know NBC owns sci-fi, but this is not a right. sci-fi show. Or a USA show show right those two networks just are not right for this either it's not really right for nbc it would have been better for like an fx network yeah and that's the news with nico for this week yep and with that we're going to move on to talking about our first finale of this epic episode filled with finales the once upon a time episode get straight on till morning The inhabitants of Storybrooke braced themselves for the end when Greg and Tamara detonated trigger Regina had placed within the curse, with the annihilation of the town and its residents immediate, and Mr. Gold mourns the loss of his son Bay slash Neil. Meanwhile, back in Neverland of the past, Hook discovers his connection to a young Bay as he rescues him from the sea and soon realizes that the lost boys are in hot pursuit of the boy. Now guys, I was wrong with John Berman being Bruce Wayne on Arrow, and yes, I was dead wrong with Neil being Peter Pan, but hey, it was sort of connected to him through perhaps Henry that was one of the biggest surprises and cliffhangers that this show has ever done since well I can't even remember it it was a shock that I still don't know whether I like it or not because it, it happened in like in the last seconds of the episode but it was still incredibly intriguing and you know when we get back in the fall and by the way while we're here once upon a time it's officially renewed for season three which was yeah. obvious but now we can whew, let it go so when the show comes back in the fall it's gonna be interesting how this goes on because I just understand how could Henry possibly be Hen Peter and also so let's t think about time wise has they actually been looking for Peter for about 200 years now basically because that's what I think they have right but doesn't time go faster to the fairy tale world true the real world I suppose but uh, but before I go uh, it's just that I know that some fans uh, the one thing I loved about Neverland was the vigilante version of the Lost Boys because they were completely different from what I had expected and also it makes because with a fairy tale show you kind of think it's going to be silly sometimes which you know it's yeah. sometimes we like it sometimes we don't like it as much but I like this take on it and I know there's a lot of fans out there last night who were I was on some forums or so and they were like oh this is so wrong this does not suit them this show at all but I felt it was really interesting and I think it's I think it works and I think it's going to be interesting how they because I think at some point they might become brighter as the Lost Boys the only downside to this story is that we now had to stand out with Greg and Tamara in season 3 I don't want them in my season 
three, but you know, I can't get any of my favorites proven right, so I can't get rid of these two. But I, I think it's gonna be a exciting theme season three to see how Neverland is gonna be because basically all of her main ca characters now are in Neverland, and I'm glad that this episode really finally pushed Hook to become a better character because yeah, he's freaking Captain Hook, guys. He's supposed to be badass. Now, guys, what did you think about this? I, you know, this, the thing of it is, I don't like Greg and Tamara sticking with the show. I know we have our issues with the characters, but I think they've read their course. Can I want to get more into what the deal is with this home office group? Can I thought the cliffhanger was going to involve that story getting built on, not another trip back to Storybrooke, coming to Fairytale World, or Neverland, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I think that'll end up paying off in the end. Come, I think it'll help the show if they kind of do like an adventure type thing where it's kind of like call the characters we like are our crew aboard the ship because it's working on their interactions and their developments with each other i, I think we're going to kind of get like a almost a firefly situation next season where for about a half a season the family or the group of fairy tale characters are all going to be sailing around on the ship together because it's going to be about their dynamic with each other because i think that'll be interesting and i think that's what this show should do can maybe cut less on the flashbacks come i don't know if we need those as much anymore because i feel like we're just keeping we're continuously going over the same story over and over again so that's good and i'm glad neil is going to be in the next season because i have a feeling he'll get back with the group real quick either that or he's going to be the one that takes care of greg and tamara that saves henry and it's going to be henry and neil together and developing their relationship because their relationship together is really well done so if they can do that and this idea of sending everyone to the fairytale world because an idea of re retooling the show and making it a little less all over the place i think that'll pay off for the show so i think they're doing a good job to fix and set up things to solve many of the issues the show's having i think at least that's my opinion yeah dan i think they're gonna drop off on using some of the the flashbacks and rather because we're gonna have three locations next season we're gonna do a lot of jumping from location to location to location and i do think we're gonna still see storybrooke i think that we will still see occasionally what's going on there but i think it'll be much less important than neverland or the enchanted forest or the original realm whatever you want to call it so i do think we're going to see those two as the main focuses because we have neil and the other characters from that sleeping beauty and uh what's mulan, mulan. mulan yeah mulan and then whatever the new prince that they met at the end of that story arc was i think it's so, the same prince yeah it's same Philip prince. again yeah philip again how did that yeah, happen? He didn't die. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they'll explain it together. Magic. Yeah. I thought he was the guy that they saved in that one episode who was like the monster and they turned that's him the same back. Guy. To, okay. Yeah, that's the same guy. I thought those three were going to go and try and find Philip in the Wraith world. But anyway, well, they, doesn't matter. <laughs> They'll explain it next season. Whatever. But Neil's going to be there with them. And then obviously, as Dan said, and I do agree, I think that we are going to see the main characters on the ship for a couple episodes as they try and navigate their way to Neverland. And then once they're in Neverland, they're going to have to work together to try and find Henry. And I think that that's going to be the focus of the first five, six episodes. Maybe not that long, but yeah. before they actually have an altercation with the shadow. But I think it's going to be that way. You know, that, sort of that story going forward. Now, as for the Peter Pan thing... Andy, I do believe that Henry is not Peter. I believe that he was what he was just the boy that the shadow has been searching for throughout history. And so Peter was the head of the vigilantes that we saw at the end who said Peter always gets his man. That's my understanding of that scene. I do not believe that he is that it is Henry. Right. 
how about this? What if the sh I don't know. No, I don't know if this could work. But what if they consider the Shadow and Peter Pan as I don't know right now as one and the same person? And I don't know because why wasn't he there then if he's looking for the boy? He's off searching other worlds and other realms probably at that point. Ah, yeah. Okay. Just go with it. It's a <laughs> we have to until season three, but it's a. Yeah. It's a mystery, but but I think we all can agree on that. We're happy that Hook is now a lot a better character now than previously, right? I've always yeah. liked him, even as a pawn. Yeah, I liked him from his very first introduction. I thought he was very very good and was fun to watch, and we knew he was going to develop more from where he was. And so I was just waiting for that to happen, but I've enjoyed him every step of the way. So I don't think it's like anything that is so much better now. I, I think he's he's good, but he's always been good. I think he'll be the character to watch next season, though, because how he develops. Because I thought he was very interesting in this episode with the flashbacks and everything they explained with him. Got that he really he tried to do the right thing with Bay, but because of his past, he couldn't accomplish that. Yeah, that was interesting. I would say this, that this was his best episode, both to the actor and the both the character. And I think writing off this episode, we're going to get more great stuff from him. I really do, do believe that. Yeah. Now, let's move to Regina, who, thank Lord, survived again. The show surprised me by showing a team up between her and Emma working together to save Storybrooke. And it was more, it was interesting to see again the explore, exploration on the magical act of Emma because it's been a while since we've seen some magical about her. And however, with Regina, Mr. Gold, and Emma now gone, aka the only ones with magic as we know of, what will the home office do while they are gone? And because they can still get to Storybrooke, I think, and it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit concerned for that but i love the interaction between regina and henry it was i think that was the mo one of them their best scenes of the season it was beautifully done yeah. and it was they expressed that they loved each other you know what what you know what more can you ask for so what do you guys feel about it well nico had kind of said this last season that last year it did a really good job of playing off the theme of mother's day with um Kenry eating the, the apple cobbler and almost dying. And then Emma, was it Emma's love or Regina's love that saved Kenry at the end? I forget. It, the it was Emma's. Season. Okay, it was Emma's. But I thought this was uh, another interpretation of that aspect. In this episode done very well. Called mm -hmm. Mother's Day and a Mother's Love. With Henry's essentially two mothers coming together to save him. I thought that was a very beautiful thing. It really fit the theme of the day. Kind of what was going on in the mindset that people had. Probably sitting down to watch this show on, on Sunday night. And so it was it being a family show, I thought they hit that uh, home very well. And I think we might see Regina maybe helping Emma with her magical powers and how they work and how they function and some things like that, which will be interesting to see. Could be a great part of her redemption, shall we say. Yeah, I agree, Dan. I like exactly what you just said very much. I I think that this is going to be this was a major step in Regina's redemption. Her willingness to sacrifice for Henry, of course, but also the rest of the people so that Henry did not end up alone. Now right. ultimately he did end up alone, but that was not their fault. You know, they saved everybody and they were able to do it, it, it together, but now they have to work together in a extended period to now go and save him. And I think this saving Henry will be Regina's chance to fully redeem herself now that she's taken a huge step in the right direction. Right. And this was a, a real step in the right direction. Previously, she had just been, you know, trying to do it and not really, her heart was not behind it. But I think finally she sees that when she does the right thing, you know, all this good can happen. And even though Henry ended up getting taken, that wasn't 
her fault and that wasn't because she did the right thing. It was because bad people were doing the wrong thing. And I think that that's going to help guide her in where she goes the rest of next season. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. To the writers of Once Upon a Time, if you're listening, give us that storyline that Regina becomes like a teacher for Emma because that would be so freaking badass. That would be pretty cool. Indeed. Now, let's talk about the flashback. Which it, because it was one of my favorite aspects of the finale. It really went deeper into Hook. And it made and it made the relationship between him and Bay so much more interesting because we found out so much more about them. And it was... Can I just say I love this version of Smee? Yeah. He is so much well... He's so much done better here than in the Hook movie. I'm at, Yes, I'm going there, guys. He is actually better than the version that they, they had in Hook. And what did you guys feel about the flashback? Was it? Let's talk about, like about the settings. Or, like, did you feel like the effects were good? Did you feel like it felt like Neverland? Did you feel the colors? Like, how did you feel about it in general? Well, I think they. It was mainly on the ship because I think that was intentional to make Neverland the big draw to next season, okay, setting up our curiosity and our interest in uh, Neverland and what's going to be there. So I think they kind of kept it in the dark a lot for us to get us excited about next season. Got seen characters like Tinkerbell, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like the flashbacks. I always like flashbacks, though. <laughs> I always feel like yeah. they fill in details that you would otherwise only get through exposition. So actually getting to see it act out through a flashback is so much better than someone just explaining what happened to them, I think. And that's why I think it works so great in Lost. I think it works so well in Arrow. I think it works in the following. I think it just works on television now. And now that it's become an accepted form of of narration or rather than narration it is good i like it now that's not to say that a voiceover narration can't do what it does if you look at the batman comics his inner dialogue or his inner monologue is one of the greatest things about the batman book it can be some of the best storytelling in the book so i'm not saying you can't use that form but i really enjoy seeing flashbacks because it's a visual version of like an inner monologue and i like that yeah also, Tinkerbell needs to be played by Laura Vanderbilt. I'm just saying. Yes, I, know I don't say think that. they're going to get that. I just don't see it. I think that she's probably too expensive if it's going to be an extended arc. Well, I, I'm not sure how Tinkerbell's going to fit everything now based on the shadow situation and Peter Pan kind of being a villain at this point. Right. If I say Felicia Day, would you be happy then? Mm, no. I don't think I see her as... Because, I mean, I've seen her as a fairy and she's hilarious, but that was a very crude fairy and I, yes. I have that, that in my mind for the Legend no, of gonna... Neil. Oh, I love the Legend of Neil. <laughs> Different Neil. Andy, different deal. Well, producers of Once Upon a Time, please get Laura, and I will make you apple pie that is not poisoned by Regina. And... (laughs) Okay, let's go some quick odds and ends. Dan, I think you get really happy about this episode. You got your bell back. The end of personality changes. Yes, I did like the personality changes. But now, do you think because they are because they basically move all, almost all the main characters to Neverland, do you think that this could mean that characters like Megan Ory and uh, the actors who play the actors who play Bell is not going to be featured that much in next season and just going to be demoted to guest stars? Well, I personally would like it if because Nico did say it's. Gonna to go back to Storybrooke for you know a couple episodes or a couple parts of the episodes next season. Cause I would really enjoy it if it was told through Belle and Ruby. Ruby's eyes. I think that would be interesting if they were the main characters and they were the ones dealing with the crises in Storybrooke uh, while the other characters are gone. But with well, we Megan, Megan Ory, her show got picked up. Which okay, you right. know we, we are happy, Me- Megan. We are happy, so happy for you. And I'm, as if she's listening to this podcast, we, we are happy for you. But it's like <laughs> I love you as Ruby. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's, it's just going to be Bell now. But Nico, what were you saying? Well, I was going to say, we're probably going to see them. I do believe May, Megan Orgy may make a, she will make some guest appearances because I think that's part of her uh, contract was when she took the pilot that she would also have the ability to come back to Once Upon a Time on a, as a guest star capability. Okay. I believe that was part of what I read in one of the stories about her doing a pilot but anyway so i do believe she will be back in an episode or or two next season and i do believe that in the pilot we will see bell doing the spell that rumple gave her in the final scene i do believe that we will see that and see some sort of challenges that come with that with maybe they can't find all the ingredients they need or maybe they can't do this or that but eventually she'll get the the town protected and then people won't be able to find it and we'll have to see like bell take over and kind of run the town or or help the people who are left behind to put everything together and i think we'll see the blue fairy and people like that step up into leadership roles and obviously Leroy is going to step up and he'll be a major force because he's always been a major force. So I do think we are going to get that that story back in Storybrooke, yeah. but it just won't be as important as the other two uh, locations. Yeah, they're mainly going to be B-plots in uh, Storybrooke, I think. Yeah. Now, we saw Mulan and Aurora and Philip back, but they're also with Neil. But did you notice that that they are probably not in Neverland? Because how could they? Because I think he ended up in the Enchanted Forest, or the part that right. didn't get cursed. Yeah, he's definitely not in Neverland. They're in the original realm. But somehow I think that he's going to figure, Neil's going to figure out that Henry is there now. Because he's probably going to try to get to Neverland to save Henry. And that will be an interesting arc to see because... Because he doesn't have magic. They don't. The other three doesn't have magic. And Neverland is right. a separate land, or is it a separate dimension? Perhaps I want I feel like it's like an island out there in the sea. I, that's how I look at it as. Well, maybe uh, it is. I see it as a completely different world. Okay. A completely like how like Earthland. Or how our world is different from the Enchanted Forest world. There and Neverland is yet another one, and Wonderland is yet another one. So they're different. Okay. You know, maybe they're parallel realities, but I think it's more like, yeah, I, I think it's almost different realities. I would say different realms. I think it's. I don't. Th- I would. I don't know if I go as far as saying parallel world or different reality, but but we know at least they are they're separate. So so that would be intriguing to see, and it make we can then we can make Neil step up a bit, you know, because hopefully he will be a serious regular next year. So, you know, we get to see more of him because we love that actor so much, don't we, guys? Yeah, yeah he's, he's good. 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 Okay. Now, let's just say briefly before we wrap this up, this has been a um, different, intriguing season that has had its hits and misses. Mm, but yes. what do you, in, two, in your two cents, what would you say about this season as a whole? It was working out the kinks and I hope that they have it ironed out because they're going to have a challenge getting a season four if they don't. And I think the thought is in mind to do it by the way this finale ended but they've got to get things ironed out because not so all over the place or they're going to be in trouble next year i think this season was not as good as the first but I, I don't think it was as bad as some people think. I think they had a lot of stuff to do. They, as Dan just said, were working out some kinks in that they set up in the first season or things they had to explain from the first season. And they were also trying to set up more of a five-season arc rather than just the really cool idea they had for the first season. And so they were struggling in bringing in some of those aspects. And I think the whole thing with Neil 
being brought in, maybe it really ended up working great, but it took a while to get started. And I think that was just the issue with this season was that things took a long time to get started. And once they got moving, it got a lot better. I think the second half of the season was so much better than the first half. But I'm not saying that's because I don't think that's because in the first couple episodes they were in the other, you know, Emma and Snow were in the other realm or back in the enchanted forest i think that i actually liked that i know you guys were not big fans of that but i did actually like that and so i'm not saying it's because that and then the second half was better i just think everything moved better in the second half and it worked a lot better i agree i i agree with, with nico so i me I, because me and that we were we had our issues with it maybe Maybe too many issues with it, but yeah. um, but it was mostly because of Mulan and Aurora sometime. But they had some good runs as well, and hopefully they will be better portrayed next season. But I will, I think the second half was much better than the first one, uh, which I which is something yeah. I think you and me, you and I talked about, and um, when we got back from the hiatus. But overall, I, I'm just but from this finale, I think this was one of the best episodes of the season. Yeah, I would say the last two. This whole I. I look at the finale as a two-part episode because i think as a whole it was very good yeah but i guess that's it then that's the last episode we had to discuss for this season that's that this is the, all for this season's coverage of once upon a time make sure to stay tuned for more information as abc upfronts will be happening this week remember also comic-con is happening in a few two months so there will be lots of new information coming out so stay tuned for that and overall stay away from poison apples tamara and shadows and also we will be covering the comic-con panel for once upon a time we will. So that'll be our next discussion on what's about time. And then we will be discussing um, the show or season three when that starts in the fall. So we'll have more what's about time coming from uh, across the airwaves when it's available. Definitely. But other than guys, stay magical. All right, Andy, thanks for joining us for that once upon a time next section, along with Nico as well. Great discussion. Interested to see where the show goes next season. So with that, we're going to move on to the show that gets everyone fired up and excited. So we've unfortunately only got four episodes left. Game of Thrones with the episode The Bear and the Maiden Fair. Tywin counsels Joffrey. Melisandre shares a secret with Gendry. Daenerys exchanges gifts with a slave lord near Yunkai. Brienne battles a formidable adversary in Harrenhal. Shay isn't happy with Tyrion's new situation. Sansa worries about her future. We begin this week's Game of Thrones discussion south of the Wall, where I really wanted Orel the Wildling to be tortured in the same way Theon was for getting up in John and Regret's business by being such a creeper. I know we need a character like this in forbidden romance stories, but that doesn't keep the guy from ticking me off as he is clearly causing trouble because he wants to get Gidegrit's pants, which seems to make her very uncomfortable, even though she is too strong-willed of a character to admit it. Although once Orel got out of the way, I enjoyed John and Ygritte's scenes much better, because they're very modern day like flirting, because something very innovative for a fictional story taking place in a medieval setting. Can Ygritte being amazed with even the simplest things beyond the wall gets a doctor companion, let me show you the universe aspect to their relationship. But this is much more satisfying as they can act upon it, cause like the doctor and his medieval companions. Again, if you're not a Doctor Who fan, watch the whole new world scene from Disney's Aladdin, but I guess you'll kind of get what I mean. 
Then on the other hand, despite the world is theirs feeling that John and Ukraine's romance have set this point, with John warning her about all the wildling invasions that have failed, and Ukraine telling him, if we die, we die, but first we'll live, I'm getting the sense that their final fate may be grim, as in they are going to die together in an epic battle. So Nico, does the character of RL being such a creeper tick you off? What's your thoughts on John and Ukraine having one of those romances that will be the stuff of legends, but end tragically with them dying together or for each other in battle. Dan, I actually like the idea of Orel being jealous of John and trying to get your grit to leave him and be his woman, but realizing that that will never happen because he mentions that she's in love with Jon Snow. As for John and Ygritte's love story, it is going to be the stuff of legends and absolutely has the potential to end tragically since they are both on opposite sides of a battle. But I can't confirm or deny any further details because nobody wants me to spoil it for them. <laughs> Just enjoy the development of their relationship in the next three episodes into the finale. Well, I guess me being upset about Orel is just me enjoying it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You're supposed to yeah. be like, oh my god, this guy's trying to get in there, and you want to hate him for that, you know? Yes. But at the same time, you like it because it is, it's causing conflict, it's causing issues in that relationship, and you want it to work out between these two because we everybody loves Jon Snow. He's one of the right. best, best characters left on this show. So yeah, you absolutely love him, and you want to see him succeed but you need that conflict i love how we refer that to as left <laughs> left so the characters left on it's bad it is god i'm sure that there's more deaths to come that's even worse come up by the time this story is over there's going to be more of that go on at the end who knows because i know you're not completely finished yet either no so there could be something that catches you off guard eventually yeah and uh, there's two more books coming so <laughs> yeah it could not end pretty huh <laughs> yeah. exactly in another location south of the wall, Asha's opposition to Joan and his sister, which I had been complaining about because it had seemed to be out of childish jealousy, made a lot more sense. Because she told a cautionary tale about how her wildling husband could come back and left, and they came back as a White Walker. Personally, if someone told me this story, I would have started altering my course back towards Castle Black. But with Bran neglecting this morning, I'm wondering if he's going to become the next Stark to witness the White Walkers in person. Nico, what did you make of Asha's cautionary tale? Good first reading into the books. Is Bran going to end up learning a hard lesson by failing to listen to his loyal servant? Or is he right to be searching for the answers to his vision? Dan, remember, much of this story is new in the show because by this point in the books, Osha and Bran had parted ways and she took Rakan to the south and Bran, Jojen, Hoder, and Mira went north towards the wall. So this story about her man becoming a White Walker is a new aspect added to the show to give us a feeling of the wildlings' feelings about the dangers beyond the wall. Bran is essentially on a vision quest and is meant to seek the three-eyed crow beyond the wall. So he is meant to be searching for answers to his visions. So we are aware of that being his mission right now. So he yeah. is definitely supposed to be doing what he's doing. This whole thing with Asha is really, it's new to me, but I think it's just sort of showing the difference in between the people from the South and the people from the North and what they know. And I'm talking about South of the Wall, right. North of the Wall, because, you know, Bran is from the North of the Kingdom, but it's still the South because it's South of the Wall. Well, and you still can't explain all that through eternal thought. Right. And so this is their way of doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we were we were eventually going to see that split, I think. Yeah. 
And once they determine that the course might be maybe too dangerous for young Rakon, that they will make the decision that Asha and him will split and head south. Okay. All right. Well, just to kind of blow through this one, because I just really don't care for this story at this point. I know it's out of order with the episode, but we're going to go somewhere near Winterfell because I just want to get Theon's story over with for the week because it really still is annoying me for going nowhere. Kind of really the scene we got here goes more about shock factor than anything else because it appears the boy whose identity still remains a mystery took poor Theon's manliness. So, Nico, is Theon's storyline ever going to go somewhere? I've talked to a lot of hardcore fans that I know, and they are just simply getting sick of this plotline like I am, to where they just want the writers to kill Theon off. And I'm kind of beginning to agree with this statement, as it certainly doesn't have the quality of the other story arcs. Dan, I've never been a fan of the Theon character, and thus could not care less about his story in either the book or the show, and would not mind if they killed him off right now. This scene was pretty gruesome and psychologically traumatic to... I think most male viewers, yeah. but does it have a purpose besides possibly introducing another psychopath to the story in the character that is torturing him? I just don't know why this story is being shown in this season or the show at all. It yeah. just doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, I'm I'm okay with them just killing him off in this the end of this season. It's like, oh, let's just have fun torturing this guy. Yeah. I don't really think we want to see that. Okay. Makes me wonder what those people that write for Game of Thrones are thinking sometimes. <laughs> You know? Well, they really haven't steered us wrong yet, so I do think it's serving a purpose, but I just don't know what it is at this moment. Get to it, darn it. Yeah. Well, moving on to the road on the way to the twins, Caitlin Stark expresses her concerns to Rob about Big Bad Walder Frey, who I'm envisioning as a medieval version of Elaine's boss, Mr. Pitts on Seinfeld, that's obsessed with marrying his daughters to a proper match. Guess with me viewing Walder as a sitcom character, I guess I'm like Robin Edmure, could not taking him very seriously. Again, with the way Rob's luck has been running as of late, I'm probably completely wrong on Walder, not being someone to be afraid of. But Nika, do you think I'm feeling this way? based on how he has been discussed so far in the story? Yeah, I think so, Dan. Walter Frey is a 90-year-old guy who has something like 40 children with three different wives oh and, my a God. and a multitude of bastard children as well. He has a 20-something-year-old Mrs. Walter Frey III who is a third of the age of some of his kids. He's a curmudgeon of an old man. Dan, you are right to both feel he is a sitcom-like character and one that you should be wary of if things do not go the way he wants them to go. So yeah, they don't really do a very good job of explaining him in the first season. But yeah. yeah, he is this old guy that is just crazy, always thought he was being treated unfairly, that he has this very important crossing of the river, and so he should be made more important. Yet he's a bannerman of the, the people at River Run, the Tullys, so, and he's always felt that he should have been a lord and that they should have been his subjects. So yeah, he is just really a curmudgeoned old man. <laughs> I understand, Rob Stark. I do. I understand why he went with the nurse. Yeah. Well, with all the bad that's happened, Rob did get the good news of his wife being pregnant. But after seeing Ned Stark get his head chopped off in season one, every time something good happens to a Stark, I find myself bracing for the bad. Which in this scenario, I think could be Rob's wife dying in childbirth. Causing it to appear that Rob breaking his oath to marry one of Walter Frey's daughter is going to be all for naught. 
Nico, should I brace myself for things with Rob going bad with a baby on the way to worse with him losing his wife and child? I know you can't answer the question without divulging spoilers, but give us something like an observation or something to discuss. Yeah, Dan, actually, we can discuss the fact that Rob's wife being pregnant is not discussed in the book, at least not in in book three but rather she discusses with her mother and caitlin that they are trying but as of the time when they leave for the wedding she is not pregnant or does not know that she is pregnant i wonder if this means they are going to change her arc again or do something completely different than in the books because in the books she stays back at river run because she and her family are lannister bannermen and it was yeah. not safe for them to leave the safety of river run but here in the show she is traveling with rob to the wedding and is preggers so so I'm wondering if that means that her arc is going to be vastly different than it was in the books, again, in this aspect. Sounds like they want to play up the romance factor. Yeah, definitely. I don't know where that goes for going forward, and maybe they change something or make it a little more dramatic, or maybe she starts having pains and they send her back to River Run, you know, but she gets to stay with Rob for longer. I just don't know. By the way, I, I, I think we should specify here. George R.R. Martin did write this episode. Oh, yeah. So he is making the changes. It's the, the author that's doing this, by the way. So it's not like they're totally, you know, unofficially going off book here. Oh, no. He's like doing some of it. everything that gets changed is done with the overall story in mind, just needing yeah. to cut down on the number of characters and to tell stories that you can't do. Because in the book, you can use, as you mentioned earlier, the inner right. monologue and get that understanding of what's going on in these characters' heads and get the full story. Whereas when you're showing it on television without using a nar- narration, which would totally just ruin the the pacing of the show yeah you need to show things a little bit different than they happen in the book so i'm of the understanding that martin is approving a lot of these changes and he knows that these changes are only being done so that they can tell the story that he's already told in a television setting and he's all for it he's he's he loves this this show right the other thing it makes it less all over the place Right. I have a friend who thinks they should condense it even more. I don't know about that, but it makes sense why they have to do these things because I, I think it would just be too much. And uh, moving forward, outside of Stormsun, Melisandre shows Jenry the ship graveyard left behind from the Battle of Blackwater Bay, where she reveals to him that King Robert was his father. And I was sort of surprised that it went that way, as I thought Melisandre was going to use Gendry as a hostage to help Stannis. But that is not the case at all, as the sorceress seemed to be inspiring Gendry to build up his own force for the purpose of taking the Iron Throne. Nico, am I correct in my interpretation of this scene that Melisandre is trying to enter Gendry as a new player in the Game of Thrones for some power position? No, Dan. Remember, we discussed this last week that Gendry is a bastard of Robert's and thus yeah. has absolutely no claim to the throne. Unless okay. the king were to legitimize him from bastard to legitimate heir, which only the king can do, and since the king would never do that for Gendry because he'd be in direct opposition to him, it is not how it will go. Melisandre was mentioning the power that resides in the blood of a king, and this is alluding to what I mentioned last week, that I think she is going to try and sacrifice Gendry to the Lord of okay. to the Lord of Light to give Stannis the power he needs to defeat the Dark Lord or the Dark One. And I think actually what they call him 
is just the darkness, uh, which is okay. the White Walker's leader slash god. Melisandre is more interested in fighting the Dark One than Stannis winning the Iron Throne, but she believes that when Stannis defeats the Dark One or the darkness, he will earn and win the Iron Throne, and to do that, he will need to sacrifice Genry to the fire and the Lord of Light. So she's just curious to, to see the Dark One? No, she wants to defeat him. She wants to defeat him. Okay. Yeah, she is a devout disciple of the Lord of Light. And the Lord of Light will always fight the Dark... We're going to call him the Dark One just because it sounds better than the Darkness. Yeah. But, and it makes it sound like it's one being. But right. it's it's essentially going up against the White Walkers who embody the Darkness. Okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of Jenry's fate, let's start up with the Brotherhood Without Banners, where Arya is royally pissed, and she should be, because for men of honor, they are sure good at breaking promises. Because for all she knows, they could have shelled Jenry into slavery or worse. God, to top that all off, they decide not to take Arya to River Run, as promised, causing her to run off into the woods, where she is grabbed by the Hound, which could spell danger for the young girl. But based on the turnaround that's occurred with Jamie, I think it's going to turn out to be quite the opposite, because I'm seeing the potential for them becoming unlikely allies. Nico, is this something that's possible, even after what's happened with the Butcher's Boy? Also, does Arya not know Jenry's fate at this point? She just assumes Melisandre bought him with some nefarious intent in mind? Right? Yeah, so Arya does not know Jenry's fate. She only knows that they sold him to Melisandre and that she probably does not have good intentions for him. Don't expect Arya to ally herself with the Hound. At least not really. He is on her list and will forever be on her list. Rather, expect him to merely try to do what the brothers promised to do before and sell her to her family for a ransom. He has been reduced to a mercenary slash outlaw by running from the king, so he needs money to go drink himself into oblivion. But this is Arya's story, and nothing goes like you expect. So expect interesting things and a bunch more action, and maybe another showdown between the brothers without banners and the hound. Interesting. Excited for that. Yeah. While going way across the narrow sea, Daenerys continues to keep proving that she's the ultimate badass because the young leader is going around the desert as this vigilante warrior queen, freeing all the slaves that she comes across. But this week, Daenerys showed her mastery of intimidation tactics by feeding her dragons raw meat while meeting with the slavers of Unikai. On that note, Daenerys handled herself in this encounter very well, to the point that guys better look out if they get into the doghouse with this girl. But I still can't help but wonder if she has bit off a little bit more than she could chew again, because she threatened the Unikai without any real knowledge of who their powerful friends are. Last time, things worked out for Daenerys, got her getting her army, but this time, it's possible she could face a major setback. Nico, based on my thoughts here, would you say Daenerys' fatal flaw as a character is she believes in the good of her cause to free slaves so much that she's almost overconfident good will always prevail? In other words, it's almost like Danny's noble obsession with freed slaves is her greatest strength and her greatest weakness at the same time. What do you think on this, Nico? What's your thoughts? Dan, indeed, that is a great way to put it. She is young, brash, and often overconfident, yet usually smart enough to get herself out of tricky situations. She rushed headlong into this confrontation with Yunkai without knowing anything about the Yunkai masters or their friends slash allies. While I don't think it is too spoilery to suggest that she will win this encounter, I think she will lose more than she was willing to risk to do so. I'll leave it at that and let you see what I mean in the next few episodes. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense of the progression of her character. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, she kind of needs to learn that lesson, that hard lesson that all leaders learn. So I'm hoping that's what you're referring to. Yeah. Because that would be interesting to watch. 
As for our King's Landing report, it started out with two fun corresponding scenes, where Marjorie tried to comfort Sansa, knowing she had to marry Tyrion. God, Bronn tried to do vice versa with Tyrion. Now, with Marjorie's scene, I thought she made some very valid points to Sansa, that marrying Tyrion isn't as bad as it seems, but based on the brilliant way actress Natalie Dormer plays her character, which Nico got a double dose of this week on CBS's Elementary, I can't shake the feeling there is a more manipulative reason behind this, that maybe revolves around her kiting that her late husband was gay. I'm not sure on that one. And as for Bronn and Tyrion, what can I say? I can't get enough of the bickering, sarcasm, and crudeness that occurs when these two guys get together. Because it's always good for a laugh. But what can be taken away from both of these scenes is that a marriage between Tyrion and Sansa might just work story-wise, based on its sheer awkwardness. Nico, have I got crazy for thinking that a marriage between Tyrion and Sansa is something that would be good for this story? What's your thoughts on the matter? Oh, absolutely, it will be good for the story. In fact, it creates a major plot point that reverberates throughout the rest of the series and sets up a showdown next season that will have Dan cheering from the rooftops. So, yeah, I think it's safe to say that this will be good for the story. Absolutely good for the story. Does it involve my hatred of Tywin Lannister? I'm not going to spoil anything. All right. Okay. (laughs) I'm kind of excited now. Yes. Yes. Good. By the way, in case you don't know, come ready. I hate Tywin Lannister. Okay, there's a follow-up question about how Shay fits into all of this. Nico, what do you think is holding back Tyrion from standing against his father to be with her? Fear or maintaining a sense of honor? While I'm sure honor and obedience to his father play a part in his not standing up to his father, a larger part is probably the fact that Tywin could cut him off at any moment and put him out on the streets to become poor. Yeah. Tyrion's brilliant and could probably find work across the Narrow Sea, but no one would dare cross Tywin and hire Tyrion if he threw him out on the street in Westeros. So in a sense, it is fear honor and obedience that keeps Tyrion from opposing his father too much or outright standing up to him. Also, as you might remember from Tyrion telling us a couple times about his first wife, the one, the commoner that he married, yeah. and Tywin turned her into a whore for a day and forced all of Tyrion's soldiers or protectors to uh, rape her, right. you know, and and then make it so she was not his wife. So he's afraid that he'll do a similar thing to Shay. Yeah. He didn't tell her that, though, right? That was just between him and Bronn, that conversation, right? I think that he did tell her when he changed from hiding her to putting her as Sansa's handmaid and okay. why why he explained it to her. But I don't – I think they showed that. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, speaking of old Tywin, we got a highly anticipated scene between him and Joffrey, where I thought he was going to put his grandson in his place, much like Tyrion in the season premiere. But instead, Tywin spoke to Joffrey as if he was a small child, clearly implying to him that he's just a figurehead, that Grandpa is really pulling the strings as king. Then again, even though Tywin discarded Joffrey as some idiot, the young king did make a very valid point about Daenerys and her dragons being a major threat. But you just go on ahead ignoring her, Tywin, because it maintains my aspirations to see him get flame-broiled by a dragon like a whopper from Burger King. So, Nico, is this scene the beginning of that turnaround or that understanding you were foreshadowing that I was going to have of Joffrey? Yeah, let me just be absolutely clear about Joffrey. I did not intend for you to come to the conclusion that Joffrey's character would turn around or change, but I merely implied or wanted to imply was that your understanding of him might change in the later part of the series and that his story would become much more interesting this season, possibly next. Whenever they get around to the weddings 
and he finally gets married to Marjorie. So don't be mistaken and expect him to become less of a monster. It's just maybe that we accept him for who he is, or maybe Marjorie keeps him under better control than his mother could, or maybe something completely unexpected happens to his character and changes everything, or maybe it's all three or none of these. Can't give too much away, or things will get boring. Way to tease that one. Yeah. Keep us guessing and excited. I think the weddings are happening in the finale. I think so. That sounds right. Well... On that note of turnarounds, let's go to Heron Hall, where we watch Jamie and Brienne say goodbye, because they are forced to part ways. Because as soon as this scene happened, I knew that was not the end of their adventure. I'll admit, since we started reviewing Game of Thrones here on ATA, almost all of my predictions have been completely off. Guys, this story is very good, got surprising you. But this time I knew I was right. Guys, Jamie got about halfway to King's Landing when he realized his captors were going to kill Brienne. Now, in some cases, the story going the way I actually predicted, get to go for once, could be a side of Game of Thrones dropping the ball. But this time it worked, because it was so darn satisfying, because Jamie shows back up at Heron Hall to save Brienne from a trial by combat with a bear. I mean, what other show besides Game of Thrones could do this without looking silly? Yes, I did have flashbacks of Anchorman when Jamie jumped in the bear pit with Brienne. But once I comprehended that this was a real bear, and saw it actually maul Brienne, this shaped up to be some really great intense TV action. In addition, this was a huge victory for Jamie over Locke taking his hand. Kind of as a person, because Jamie using his words to force Locke to free Brienne, instead of just immediately killing him, showed a huge shift in personality that could, in the future, make him closer to his brother, because this is something his brother Tyrion would have done. So, Nico, with George R.R. R. Martin, the writer of this book, actually writing this episode, the scene with the bear had to be pivotal in the development of Jamie and Brienne's story. Is that a fair assessment? Can did this moment live up to what it was in the books? Yeah, Dan, this was a great scene here and lived up to the book's vision of this event. I loved seeing her go toe-to-toe with the bear, and I think they changed the scene a little to make it even more epic and the escape from the bear more dramatic. But I also remember from the book them killing the bear, so I was surprised they did not do that, do the same thing here, unless it will come back again. But I don't remember that from the books coming back, so maybe that's something they're going to do for TV, or maybe they just left it alive for the sake of not killing a bear. I don't no. Anyway, right. it was I think great. it would be hard to do. Yeah, it was a great episode written by the incomparable George R.R. R. Martin and a lot of fun to see these scenes play out. Really was looking forward to this aspect because it was important to the changing of Brienne and Jamie's yeah. relationship, their friendship starts out of this, I think, and it goes from just being respecting each other to I think actually caring for each other and not romantically, but I think as as a true friendship may come out of this. I think I like that description. Well, they've done a very good job of setting up this storyline. It's done a great job of setting up a nice climax to a lot of the episodes this season. Yeah, absolutely action. right. Absolutely right. I mean, they, they've used the Jamie and Brienne stuff brilliantly to build up, you know, great finale, a great ending to all the episodes that are just awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's great because, I mean, you have all these plot lines that interweave with each other. And it's cool that they have figured out how to weave them together or build them up just enough into making sure most of the episodes either have a solid cliffhanger or a great action-packed conclusion to the episode. And this was just one of those examples. Yeah. They were pretty good in the first two seasons, but I think they really mastered it with season three with these Jamie and Brienne seats. 
God, that's all I've got at Game of Thrones. Was there anything else you wanted to mention, Nico, or are you good to move on to Castle? I, I think, know that's going to be a debate. I think it's time to move on. All right, let's move on to Castle with a finale that I, I'm sad to say kind of disappointed me. My family liked it, believe it or not, but I wasn't too happy. So we'll see what Nico thinks here. So let's talk about the Castle episode, Watershed. Beckett has an interview with a federal law enforcement agency which compels her to reassess her job and her relationship with Castle. The latest case involves Skid Row and turns up many peculiar things about the death of a young woman found inside a water tank there. For the past couple of years, Castle season finales have been kind of a big deal to me because they have been nonstop thrill rides developing the overarching story of Beckett's mom's murder in ways that rock the foundation of Castle and Beckett's relationship, leading to heartfelt performances from the entire cast of the show. But with this season's finale, I was left disappointed because we only really got a third of what made the past season finale so great, with some heartfelt scenes being delivered by the cast of the show. But the connection to the murder of Beckett's mom was dropped to the wayside. Kind of the rocking of Castle and Beckett's relationship stemmed from the ridiculous issue we've been complaining about over the past couple of weeks regarding Beckett questioning where their romance is going, even after Castle was willing to die with her at the hands of a bomb. Now, with that being said, yes, I was disappointed that this mystery did not give us more or wrap up the story revolving around Senator Bracken killing Beckett's mom. But the mystery we got this week was very well laid out, got structured, which would have made it perfect in a standard episode. But with it being a finale, I thought we needed something that put things a little more on the line for our favorite characters than just Beckett moving on to a new job. In fact, with this week's episode involving a disgruntled senator, it could have been easily connected back to Bracken. But either actor Jack Coleman was unavailable for this episode, or they wanted to keep the overarching story going for reasons that I'll get to when I give my predictions for next season. Nico, I know that's quite a bit the process, but were you with me on being disappointed with this fifth season finale of Castle in terms of living up to the outstanding finales that have been delivered in the past? Yes, Dan, I was disappointed with this episode as a finale, though I also agree with you that it was a pretty good mystery if it were just a regular episode of Castle and not the season finale. But since it was the finale, I was disappointed. I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute, but I was also disappointed with the Beckett-Castle relationship issues in this episode that ultimately led to a predictable, quote, shocking ending. I'm very glad you felt that way with uh, me on the mystery, though. Yeah. Because I felt like I've been living in a crazy house for the past couple of days with my family. With them saying, oh, it was pretty good. It was good. They're like, no, it's not a finale mystery. Yeah. So thank you for helping me maintain my sanity here. Right. I really like the mystery for any other episode. If it yeah. had been the penultimate episode, I would have been like, that was a pretty dang good penultimate episode. But yeah. for a finale, I'm really like, what are they doing? Yeah, it was really dropping the ball for them. Especially after what a great season this was. Yeah. I don't know. We'll get into that more. But again, with me saying I was disappointed with this finale, I don't want everyone to think that our review is saying it was an epic fail. Because as I said, I mean, the mystery would have been fine if this was a standard episode. In addition, there were some really nice character development scenes. You know, Ryan telling Esposito he was going to be a father was a nice buddy moment between the two guys. And I did like Beckett and Castle going to their parents for advice on their relationship troubles, as it followed suit with some of the scenes I've loved from past finales. Plus, we've barely seen Martha this season, so that was nice to see her. 
Plus, even though the whole where are we going thing is kind of stupid, I thought the advice Beckett's dad gave her was rock solid because it looked at the situation from the standpoint of his daughter's career, got her original dream before it was tragically altered by the murder of Beckett's mom. Speaking of careers, another nice touch to this episode was the scene where Beckett reflected on her career as a police detective, calling the interrogation room her home, because it gave us a glimpse of the Beckett character we love amongst a romantic mess. So, Nika, I know you've been frustrated with these past couple episodes of Castle, because the writers seem to be throwing monkey wrenches that seem to have come out of nowhere into the show's main romance, but do you agree with me that the scenes I just mentioned were good things to take away from this finale? Or what else did you like about it? Dan, I did like the scene with Ryan and Esposito and the way they dealt with the news that Detective Ryan was going to be a dad. But as for the Beckett interrogation scene, I almost felt like it was the writer trying too hard to elicit emotions in the scene, and it failed okay. to do so for me. I liked the idea of her saying that she's basically lived there the past five years, but overall the scene did not work for me. I don't know. I did like the Alexis Castle little interaction in the middle. Yeah. I, I did like that. It actually was good, and I, I wish they'd actually had a little bit more Alexis yep, that's what all, I said. all season, but you know, especially in this one scene. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I was trying to find something deeper in that scene with Beckett at that point. But compared to some of the other really deep scenes they've had about Beckett being a cop and what that means to her, this was kind of weak compared to some of those. Especially that really great scene, and it's one of her last scenes, that she had with Captain Montgomery when he gives her that big speech. Yeah. That was the most powerful thing ever. Kind of again, the whole time, I was, I'm looking back to that episode because that season three finale is kind of what raised the bar for this show. and it wasn't there in this episode at all. Right. Because so that's that's what killed it. I mean, after seeing that episode, my expectations for a castle finale is very high. And this dropped it completely. But moving forward, as for Rebecca's decision, God taking the Attorney General's job, which began in last week's episode, we beat it on the head that Beckett being unsure about where her relationship is going with Castle has been kind of character. I think we've done that over the past four weeks. But I thought that Castle's reaction was just right and completely a character. Yes, I know he was upset about Beckett keeping her interview, a DC secret from him, but he seemed just as confused about Beckett's where are we going issue as we have been. Maybe to a certain extent, you could say that Martha's babble about Castle holding back on sharing his feelings for Beckett is true. But what more can the guy do to show that he loves her than being willing to die at the hand of a fiery explosion so she won't be alone? Among various other things, we probably could use as examples from throughout the show's history. And due to all of those examples, Castle proposing to Beckett, as opposed to dumping her in the cliffhanger to this episode, made perfect sense to me. Because really, everything we've seen from the pilot on indicated that he was never going to let Beckett go. And the only time he did let her go was when she was willing to throw her life away to catch her mom's killer. But Beckett isn't endangering her life by taking a job in D.C. So I see why he went with popping the question, and how it fit within his character's wheelhouse. I just thought they missed a prime opportunity for a great father-daughter scene between Castle and Alexis when she asked him what's wrong when he was distraught about Beckett. Because I thought Alexis would give him the inspiration to go and propose to Beckett. But I guess based on the way the scene was done, it could be assumed that this was done off-screen or implied symbolically. But again, I'm with you, Nico, that we needed a little bit more. Nico was Castle's reaction to Beckett going behind his back about the job in DC, because the decision to propose to her got the end of this episode fit his character, as opposed to him just breaking up with Beckett. Dan, as I said before, this cliffhanger surprise was anything but a surprise. In fact, yeah. it was essentially the only way that the episode could really go by the end and still work as a show for next year. Exactly. 
If they had a terrible breakup in this episode, it would not make sense for next season for them to work together. Rather, the cliffhanger of whether or not she, she'll say yes and what that means for them next season is the only way it could really go, so I was not surprised. I was not a fan of the entire arc about this whole Beckett questioning their relationship and the buildup in this episode was sort of terrible. Yeah. Really, this is the first time I've been greatly disappointed with Castle as a series, and the last few episodes have really ticked me off. I'm hoping they can fix this by abandoning this arc next season, but I hope it does not mean this show will suffer terribly from that six-season slump we've been worried about. Yeah, I just don't know. Yeah, well, I'm thinking right now that from here on out, this is the bad patch, and we're only going to go up from here. Hopefully. Because I see this show only having maybe two, three more seasons. It's got to be as good to depend on how this one goes. But I, I've seen maybe two, one or two more seasons. So I feel like this will be them rekindling the romance, kind of they'll be together for a final season. Okay. I, I think. I think. They got to solve the Bracken case. That's the big thing. But... Again, I'm as big of a castle shipper as the next guy. But I think in the first few minutes of Castle Six season premiere, we're going to see Beckett turn down his marriage proposal. Because I just don't think it's time yet within the course of the series. Because I can't see Beckett completely committing herself to someone until her mother's killer is brought to justice. Which is why I said they need to solve the Bracken case. And then after the opening title sequence, we're going to jump forward three months. Kind of like they did in the season four premiere with Beckett's recovery after being shot. But this time around, they're going to go with the theory I brought up last week of Beckett being like three months into her attorney general job and then something breaks on the case to bring down Senator Bracken that brings her back to New York because I guess I'm I'm saying this it might be a stretch but Castle has some piece of evidence that will help her with the case from when he was working with the deep throat guy in season four on that note it is also possible for Castle to follow Beckett to DC but I'm going with my first prediction because it keeps Ryan and Esposito on the show which I do want so Nico is this what you think will go down in the season premiere this fall what's your predictions for season six possibly Dan but if she turns down the, his proposal, which I think she might do as well, does that break them up since he, she is rejecting his proposal and moving away? That does not seem to mesh with making this show work, though we did discuss last week that Beckett might realize she's made a terrible mistake and needs to win Castle back and rekindle their relationship. I'm just worried that this will be a terrible arc. Much like this season's Beckett Doubts arc, but hopefully I'm wrong that it's bad and it actually works. Yeah. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because really they've only screwed up once and that's with this Beckett's doubts arc. So at this point, I'm still going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think by the end of season premiere, she is going to come to that conclusion. Okay. What you said about how she's going to realize she made a mistake and needs to win him back. Because I don't think you could drag it out any longer than that. Right. Because people are going to get mad. Again, it's going to be very quick, but we need to blow this under the rug quick so we can get back to the good stuff. Because this show still has a lot of good stuff it could work with. Yeah. And through saying that and looking at this fifth season of Castle as a whole, I've got to say it was pretty darn cool. Because we got really some of my favorite episodes of the series, including the Comic-Con episode, which made all my Nathan Phil and fanboy fantasies come true. The Return of the Triple Killer. Some great face-offs between Beckett and the incredibly talented Jack Coleman as Senator Bracken. The fun, thrillingly action-packed two-part introduction of Castle's secret agent father, played by the great James Brolin. Got the brilliant rear window theme, surprise prize party 100th episode. However, with all this great stuff to rave about, Castle did reach some of its lowest points in the series. With a weird and one episode romance uh, involving Esposito, got a bodyguard, and this whole where are we going with our relationship issue that Beckett has been having with Castle, which wrapped up this season. 
called all the key to this week's storyline not leading to a sixth season slump because at the story with bringing Senator Bracken into justice for murdering Beckett's mob is still in play. Meaning, I think there is some outstanding stories the writers can draw from there, especially if Beckett maintains her connection with the Attorney General's office when returning to New York. Guys, that could raise the stakes on bringing Bracken down to epic proportions, which may even get Castle's dad involved, meaning more appearances from James Brolin. Yay! So with that, Nico, why don't you wrap things up on Castle Season 5 for the summer with your thoughts on this season as a whole, citing some of your favorite moments, as well as what you think the show should do to avoid the dreaded sixth season slump. Dan, I think I've made it pretty clear that I am worried that next season has a huge possibility of falling victim to the sixth season slump that has dogged many of our favorite shows, and that I'm not really sure how they can avoid that besides completely abandoning the whole Beckett doubting the relationship arc and be done with that crap. But as for this fifth season, I was a huge fan of this whole season and loved the Comic-Con episode. I also really liked the return of the Triple Killer and how we were pretty sure that he faked his death, but almost everyone did not believe Castle's theory that, that he did indeed fake it. I liked the introduction of Castle's father and the whole Alexis abduction aspect and how that all played out. I thought that was really good. For the most part, actually everything except for the mid-season premiere and the whole Beckett doubting the relationship with Castle, which essentially kicked off in that mid-season premiere this was one of the best seasons of the show and i think it could have been so much better if they just hadn't tried to throw this monkey wrench in i agree i agree but i mean we're just gonna have to keep our fingers crossed for next season yeah this could be a doozy i don't want to sit here complaining all next season no i don't want this to be our bones section next year yeah the nathan phil and gods help us all right well with that we're gonna move on to a show that you know it's continuing a streak of pretty funny episodes. Cause that's Modern Family with the episode Games People Play. Phil hopes his new RV will be the perfect vehicle for a family road trip, but Claire lets her husband find out for himself why it might not be such a good idea. Meanwhile, Jay and Gloria help Manny look for his misplaced backpack, which gives them a chance to snoop around in Claire and Mitchell's houses. And Lily's gymnastic meet gets Mitchell and Cameron competitive juices flowing. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family included Gloria being exceptionally bad at playing Pictionary because she described the insult that comes from the drawing of a donkey got a pair of lips as horse mouth. Cam and Mitchell scolding Lily for being unsportsmanlike when she was actually being nice. Got all heck breaking loose between the dumpy kids when a bee got on board Phil's new RV with the song Flight of the Bumblebee playing in the background. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? My favorite comedic moment was the dance Phil and Haley were doing at the end and how into the Laker girl routine Phil got. Great stuff and made equally funny when he scolded Alex and Luke's for being too loud while doing their math tutoring because he and Haley were doing important things. Also, Luke had a bunch of one-liners that were just killer mixed throughout the episode that made me laugh. This house still holds its secrets. Or when he fell out of the bathroom and says, I don't know what button I just pressed, but that was amazing. And... Not as embarrassing as failing a class that starts with pre. All good things this week again from Luke. And it's so random but hilarious. That's what makes it work so well. It's just the randomness. And the way he says the lines. Oh, yeah, yeah. The voice he delivers them in. It's just priceless. Yes. Uh Hilarious. Great stuff. Modern Family will have its finale next week just to solve any confusion there. So that's that. 
But with that, we're going to move on to an episode of Psych that I thought was the weakest this season in terms of the humor. It wasn't bad episode, but just wasn't as good as the other ones. Good after last week's episode beat so brilliantly hilarious. It had big shoes to fill. So I see why this episode felt like a step down for all of us audience members. So let's talk now about the Psych episode, Dead Air. Psych you out in the end. When Sean and Gus's favorite DJ is murdered, they devise a scheme to find the perpetrator. Of course, it means they must go undercover as DJs themselves. Compared to all the surprising and action-packed season finales that have aired around it, I felt this week's Psych was a standard, run-of-the-mill episode that showed with the romance drama between Sean and Juliet now under the bridge. The focus has gone back towards just solving mysteries, while delivering laughs along the way. On that note, even though the comedic situations he got into this week weren't as gut-busting funny as last week's episode, Gus carried this episode in a way that made its standardizing nature worth watching by the humor coming from him taking up the microphone left behind by the murdered DJ. Now, don't get me wrong, Sean as the failed DJ was hilarious in its own right, with him crank-calling Henry at 3 in the morning, and getting Gus to admit that he makes love with his socks on. But there was something about the smooth sounds of a player named Gus, getting the airwaves with his sidekick, White Chocolate, that was comedy gold. Even when Sean tried to throw our boy off his game with his hilarious prank call about using rubber sheets, got summer camp, and I totally wanted to buy one of those, oh yeah, t-shirts that Sean was wearing, which I hope will be available to you listeners by clicking on the affiliate banners for the USA Network store, available on our individual blog post pages, cut across the airwaves.com. Yes, that's just a little bit of product placement there. Oh, yeah. Also, with this episode, I got quite a chuckle out of Gus coming to fend off the sexual advancements of Miranda, the radio station company owner, with an awkward debate where they kept making offers, counter offers, and counter counter offers on what was appropriate attire for Miranda to wear while making him a jerk chicken dinner. We all know how Gus likes his chicken. Although that's not the only advancements Miranda threw at Gus, because his actual girlfriend, Rachel, witnessed security camera footage of Miranda giving Gus mouse to mouth for an unnatural extended period of time after being shot at by this week's killer, leading to a cat fight between Rachel and Miranda. It's been seven long years that I've been harping on this show for barely giving Gus any women. Cause now he's got them fighting over him. I guess that means our pharmaceutical salesman has grown up now knowing how to use his words with the women. But I can't say the same for Sean, as he hilariously began talking to Jules like she had brain damage after being hit over the head by this week's killer. So Nico, with all that hilarious stuff to choose from, and more that I didn't even touch upon, what were some of your favorite comedic moments from this week's episode? Dan, if you find one of those A Player Named Gus tees, then you know what I want for Christmas. Nice. I, I had a lot of fun with this episode. I loved Gus as the player named Gus, especially how he kept up the voice even when he was scared and as soon as he was off the air, he started whimpering and crying again. But then was right back in his radio voice when on air again. Speaking of radio voices, I thought the gag with the ex-partner yes. being interviewed and how he was talking in a radio <laughs> voice, but it was his real voice. That was fun. I was not a huge fan of the Miranda coming on to Gus arc. I thought it was boring and too predictable. I did like the mouth-to-mouth gag, though. That was about the only thing I think worked from the entire arc. Well, maybe the offer-counter-offer bit, too. I also enjoyed Sean's prank of Henry in that phone call. Yeah. Lassie was pretty funny this week as well, and I really enjoyed his line, O'Hara, check his alibi. I'm guessing it's Swiss, as in cheese, as in full of lactate. Also, how great was it at the end when Gus got knocked out and Sean gave him an unconscious fist bump? Great stuff this week. Yes, sir. Very funny. 
As I said before about the mystery, it was straightforward and very simple to follow, with nothing really flashy about it, like with the Awake-themed episode. In fact, it even had the old mystery trope of a red herring, literally, because there was a murder suspect in this episode named Red Herring, which is a joke stolen from the cartoon A Pup Named Scooby-Doo. But Psych takes its jokes from everywhere, so who cares? However, the one thing that frustrated me with this mystery was how Psych went back to the idea of the murderer being someone who suffers from multiple personality disorder. It was genius the first time the show used this tactic back in the first season, but it's kind of getting old since this is like, I think, the fourth time the writers have used it. Thankfully, this was just used as a red herring because the guy in the sketch who Sean and Gus kept saying looked like a comic book villain was the real killer. But I think this is as far as you could go with the multiple personality fake out. And I don't want to see it used again. So, Nico, are you kind of getting sick of Psych using the multiple personality gimmick? Actually, Dan, I think we were meant to feel that way with this episode so that we would not suspect that there was really a Bob. I think it would have been a huge mistake if the woman, Laura, had actually been the murderer. But since it was just a red herring, it was great setup for the surprise. So, no, I don't think in this episode I was getting sick of it because, you know, we were supposed to feel that way. We were supposed to be like, oh, come on again. And then they hit us with the surprise that it was there actually was a real Bob. So I think in this sense it worked because it did elicit that response. But I think that's only a trick that you could pull off once. Oh, it's absolutely something you can only pull off once. Yeah, I wouldn't try that again. That that was a magician maneuver, which means you can't do a trick twice. All right. Well, finally, Miranda's sexual advances on Gus wasn't the only problem he had to face with the ladies. Because Rachel breaks the news to her favorite player that she has to go back to England for six months because of a visa issue. Obviously, Mr. Smooth as Silk, Bernie Guster, convinces Rachel that a long-distance relationship is going to work. But after hearing her on the phone with her son, Max's father, it seems like Gus's aspirations for a serious relationship has been squashed. So does that mean Miranda is going to be a reoccurring character who continuously tries to get in Gus's pants until he finds another more suitable woman? Or is Rachel going to come back? Uh, Nico, what's your thoughts on this matter with Gus's love life? Did you have any other final thoughts about the episode? God, I hope not. As I said earlier, I was not a fan at all of the Miranda character or the story so much. I really hope she is a one-and-done character. As for Rachel, I think she's gone for good now, and we might not even get a breakup scene, and rather we just get a mention that she never came back from England or that she got back with her ex or something like that as an aside in a future episode. I don't know where that leaves Gus and his love life, but maybe it means they'll bring in someone new for next season. Then again, maybe I'm wrong and they'll bring Rachel back. Anyway, overall, it was a fun episode that had a basic mystery, but the comedy more than made up for that, in my opinion, to keep it from being just filler. That's a very good assessment there. I like that call. Yeah, totally what it was. I just want Gus to have a girl again. Yeah. Come on, that's the big thing I advocate for this show. Get Gus a woman. And maybe maybe we will. Maybe there's a new one coming. Who knows? So that that's that's my new quest now that we've met the mother. You know, I want to who's who's Gus gonna marry? That's what I want to do now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's move on to another part of Wednesday night that really surprised me. I thought we were gonna get disappointed again, but they came through the clutch and provided a pretty good cliffhanger that's got me excited for the next season. So let's talk now about the supernatural episode, Sacrifice. <laughs> Using the tablet half in his possession, Crowley prepares to make his final move in the grand game against Heaven. Only Dean, Sam, and Kevin can stop him. Meanwhile, Castiel and Metatron join forces and try to stop Naomi's scheme. 
Nico, during last week's discussion, you predicted that there would be more very violent deaths in Crowley's crusade to kill everyone the Winchesters have ever saved because a ploy in getting his hands on the tablet that could close the gates of hell. Because this season finale certainly hit the ground running with this scenario as Crowley makes an attempt to kill Bobby's former flame, Sheriff Jody Mills. But before the brothers lose another ally, they make the deal to give Crowley the demon talent, which Kevin claims is the right decision on Sam and Dean's part. Although, just as it looks like the Winchesters are forced to surrender at the sacred site of Bobby's junkyard, get an excellent throwback. The brothers pull the ultimate double cross, as they handcuff Crowley with the demon-proof chains they found at the Men of Letters library, revealing to the King of Hell that he is the demon they plan to cure for the third trial. Koniko, were you surprised that the Winchesters chose Crowley as their demon to cure? How did you think it was going to play out at this point in the episode? Dan, we mentioned a few weeks ago that Crowley seemed like the only choice available to them since Ruby and Meg were both dead, and while we never really considered Abaddon, it proved a bad idea last week. So really, Crowley was the only possibility that made any sense. So I was not shocked by them choosing him as the demon to cure. Rather, I was shocked by the double cross they pulled. And really, it was pretty badass. I, I did not see it coming, but it felt like a vintage Winchester move, so yep. I loved it. It was. It was very, very good how he's put him in that position and stuff like that. Did you think we are going to lose Sheriff Mills, though? Could it be any episode? I thought they were going to come in at the last minute and save her, but the way it went down actually propelled the story better, so I liked that. Yeah, I thought so, too. All right, moving on, once the brothers arrived at the sacred ground where they planned to cure Crowley, Cass appears seeking Deed's help in saving heaven because Metatron was captured by Naomi, making Sam volunteer to complete the final trial on his own. God, I really liked it as it maintained the theme that we found of all season, of Deed's character finally showing that he trusts Sam and is treating him as a partner instead of relapsing on the concept like in season six when Sam was without his soul. But little did I know at this point, the issue of trust between the brothers was soon going to be somewhat eliminated completely. So, Nico, did you also like it that Dean left Sam to take on the process of curing Crowley alone from the standpoint that it let Sam be the hero for once? Or want to take that opportunity, especially at the end of the episode when he was willing to sacrifice himself? Yeah, Dan, this was a huge step in the Winchester brothers' relationship to prove that it has matured and grown over the last eight seasons and is not just Dean taking care of Sam and not being able to trust him not to screw it all up. Sam also proved he was capable of handling it by beating Abaddon and being willing to sacrifice himself in the end to end the war with the demons once and for all. So I did like it. Yeah, it was most definitely. It was a good twist. It really did a nice job of setting us up for what was to come. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, from here, the episode presented us with a nice contrast compared to the doom and gloom bloodbath of previous finales, with Dean and Cass search for Cupid's bow, putting a manly twist on the phrase love at first sight. However, beyond that, and Dean trying to get Sam to take the blame for something he did to a girl in the sixth grade, the middle section of this episode moved kind of slow because it seemed to be shaping the story to the direction we thought it would go, with Sam and Dean thinking they were doing the right thing and closing the gates of heaven and hell, but it had a grave consequences. Because I don't know if it was coming into this episode right off of all the surprises in the adrenaline-filled season finale of Arrow, but the way Abaddon was dispatched so easily with getting torched by Sam also felt like more of the same. Because it was another big bad like Eve or Dick Roman who was taken out in sort of an anticlimactic fashion. But it seemed like the demon abandoned her vessel. So maybe that means she'll live to be taken out in a big way another day. By the way, I think she had to show up at the church, or the middle of this episode would have been even more slow, and Jeremy Carver needed to let our guard down just enough to be surprised by the 
by the outstanding way this episode ultimately wrapped up. But before we get there, Nico, were you in the same boat I was during the middle of the episode where you appreciated Jeremy Carver using humor as a contrast to the usual bloodbath of past finales, but also felt that it moved slowly since things started shaping up to be more of what we've seen before? Dan, I'm not sure what you're talking about because I did not feel like the middle of this episode slowed or dragged at all. I liked okay. that pacing this episode and felt that it worked perfectly. Also, Abaddon definitely did not die. Her vessel was burned and she will need a new one, but that one was sort of ruined before anyways when they yeah. killed her. So she'll probably just be recast for her next appearance or somehow come back looking exactly the same, but I doubt that's what they'll do. So yeah, yeah. but really, I did not feel the pacing was off on this or dragging or anything. I, I felt it was, by the time it was over, I was kind of like, whoa, that was just about right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I felt better once it was over. I was more kind of discussing how I was feeling at the time. But See, then once I, I saw the whole thing and it all came together, it's like, okay, I get it now. I get why they did that. Yeah, I never felt that in the middle. I never felt that it was dragging or it was slow or anything. So I, I don't know. Maybe it was just my, my own. I mean, it's obviously my own preference. But yeah, I didn't well, I have an issue. I was satisfied with it when it all came together, though. Well, that's good. So that's the bottom line. Yeah, this did not fail anywhere in my book. And really, as my last point alluded my tune, along with several other critics and audience members out there, was changed. Guys, the director of this episode utilized his talented veteran sci-fi fantasy actors brilliantly. Guys, first, Mark A. Shepard sucked me right back into the story. With the expected but brilliant way he played Crowley's transformation into a real demon. Then Naomi shows up to tell Cass indeed that Metatron is the true bad guy because he wants to cast all the angels out of heaven. Because this was a scene that really only a veteran actor like Amanda Tapping or someone on Game of Thrones could pull off. Because we really had no reason to trust Naomi. But here we knew right away she was telling the truth. Because with Metatron being revealed because the bad guy, I was kind of disappointed because I said two weeks ago that I thought we needed an angel character on this show who's noble and pure. But the reviewer at TV.com brought up an interesting point that technically he still has those qualities because on some crazy pants level, he thinks he's still doing what's best for everybody by forcing the angels to live as humans so they will see why humans are so awesome. Although with that being said, I've got a completely different idea and how we may eventually get to see those biblical angels who are noble but maybe not necessarily pure but i'm going to leave that to the section where i give predictions on next season so nico did you feel that performances from great veteran sci-fi actors like mark a shepherd got amanda tapping kicked off the amazing final 15 minutes of this episode that ultimately shaped up to be refreshingly new and took this series in a surprise new direction for the future also, were you disappointed that Metatron turned out to be a villain based on our discussion about the character's first appearance a few weeks ago? Dan, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Stargate SG-1, yes. where Amanda Tapping made her name as, a, as Samantha Carter, who I'm also a huge fan of. And we both love Mark A. Shepard. So I expected nothing less than stellar performances from these two veteran actors. And we really did get great stuff from them, but particularly Mark A. Shepard, when he started to turn slash be cured. Really good stuff in those yeah. scenes. I really liked it. I was not as disappointed as I think you were, Dan, about the Metatron betrayal. I was not as gung-ho about the whole good angel thing. Now, don't get me wrong, I was excited when we saw an angel that wasn't a dick. But somewhere in the back of my mind last week, I was questioning Metatron's reasoning for teaming up with Cass and whether he was going to turn out to be playing Cass. So I was not as disappointed when it happened, maybe because subconsciously I was preparing myself for this sudden but inevitable betrayal. Okay, it's better this way because it allows Cass to stand on his own two feet with the situation. Yeah, I think so. 
I think he needs to resolve his issues in heaven and his faults on his own, not so much with Metatron or someone, you know, guiding him. Yeah, I'm wondering he's gonna if make he's, his decision on his own. If it's going to be able to do that now that he's human. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how that's all going to work. Yeah, me neither. Michael has some theories that because, you know, Metatron took part of his essence mm-hmm. and that was used in the spell, that he might be able to do a few more things. Okay. Then the rest of them, he's not sure yet. Yeah, and we'll get into that discussion in a, in a minute. Yeah, yeah. And along with this news that Metatron is going to cast the angels out of heaven, Naomi reveals the deed that completing the trials will kill Sam. Uh-oh, you know what that means, Supernatural fans. One of the Winchesters are going to die again, and we're going to have to wait five months to see if he comes back. But believe it or not, that's actually not what happened this time. Because there was no image of hell, white light, cage, or trip to purgatory. It was just deed showing his brother he loves him by telling Sam something that he should have said two years ago, Sarah Gamble. That he's never let him down. And finally, in one of the best scenes we've had with the Winchesters in a very long time, Sam and Dean finally have broken their tiresome cycle of constantly sacrificing themselves for each other. And after all of these years, by abandoning the trials and just letting the energy inside of Sam burn off. On top of that, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Sam has finally achieved the redemption that I've been begging the show to give him. Meaning Supernatural is back and moving forward. However, with Sam and Dean making the right decision at the end of this season to remain intact, causing all of my aspirations for Supernatural to come true, the brothers learn that there's still forces out there they can't control. Because this episode ends with one of the most impressive visuals of the series. Because the angels are shown falling down to Earth like shooting stars. As Metatron's plan is put into action. So Nico, were you just as overjoyed as I was about Supernatural finally breaking the constant cycle of the Winchesters sacrificing themselves for each other? What did you think of the angels being cast out of heaven, physically and story-wise? Will this plotline work? Sure, Dan. As I said before, this was a huge step in the Winchester brothers' relationship to prove that it has matured and grown over the last eight seasons. This maturity and change in the relationship was proven when Sam did not sacrifice himself for Dean or the world, and rather they stayed together to fight on and live on. Now, as for the angels being cast out of heaven, visually this was impressive, and I liked the image of the angels falling like meteors from the heavens. Will it work for next year? That really depends on how they go with the story. Are the angels, except for Cass, still going to have their powers? Are they going to have to live as humans, or will they just be angels on Earth? Are they still going to be dicks? I think it has a lot of potential, and if they have to live as humans so as not to draw attention to themselves, but still retain their powers, I think that will provide for the best story. I also could see some more Nephilims being made as the angels, while trying to fit in on Earth, may fall in love. Like I said, this story has a lot of potential, but it could go so wrong so easily as well. But I think Jeremy Cover has given us good reason to trust him at this point. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I think if they go with the angels still having their powers but having to hide those, it's going to be the best story. So they can still occasionally jump in and save the day or save someone's life or do the right thing in, in the way that we like to think of angels. But when they do that, it puts themselves at risk and maybe they have to leave their life and go hide again. Well, I think season eight was Jeremy Carver kind of cleaning up the mess. Yeah. And not straying away too far. But now I feel like the slate's clean and he can go to a whole new world with Supernatural. Okay. So I feel like we finally got development on this show where we've grown beyond the Kripke era. Okay. Instead of just trying to keep it alive. 
Right. And so I like that. I think that's what's going to help. I think that was the greatest thing that Smallville did, too. Once they decided to start doing their own thing with the Kendorians in Season 9, it worked beautifully. Yeah. And so I think that's what's going to happen for Supernatural, which is amazing. I, I, I did think the same model would work twice, but it did. So kudos to them on that. And as for my predictions for Season 9, I think based on all the alarms going off inside the Batcave, as fans are now calling it, the Winchesters are going to use their hunter contacts to form a new version of the Men of Letters. But instead of haunting the angels, Sam is going to use his newfound redemption to help redeem them so they will go back to being the angels that you and I believe in, Nico. And in the process, Sam and Dean probably have to defend the angels from all the demons and supernatural creatures that are hunting them. At least that's what makes the most sense to me. So, Nico, what's your thoughts on that crackpot theory? Because is there anything you would like to add to it? Or do you have an idea of your own? Dan, I did not even think of that possibility, but I do think it could work. I don't really have much more to add to it, and I already told you my theory about how this could work. But if we were to combine our two theories and the angels were forced to not use their powers and live as humans as the only means of hiding from the demons and other monsters that have declared open season on the angels, then it could I could see our theories intertwining. Yeah. I think that's very good. But also, it's possible that maybe the alphas want to go after the angels. That could be true. You might get that thought line still. I still think there's potential for that. I really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Finally, I'm going to wrap up my thoughts on Supernatural for this season by saying that between the road so far we got at the beginning of this episode and this episode breaking the show's tired cycle of sacrifice, I had forgotten how many great episodes this season has truly had. Got all the outstanding new characters that were introduced. In fact, I don't think there was a single episode that had something serious in it that I really did not like. Because that's something Jeremy Carver, along with the team of writers he built around him, should be really proud of. Because it took a show that was creatively on its last limbs, it gave it the hope to end on the same level of quality because where it started. So Jeremy Carver, as a diehard Supernatural fan, I thank you from the Impala in my heart for exercising the demon, kind of one of my favorite shows, with this excellent eighth season of Supernatural. So with that, Nico, why don't you bring us home with your final overall thoughts on Supernatural Season 8. Got anything else you want to share about this season finale? Dan, I agree. Not a single episode this season that I did not enjoy or felt did not further progress the story. About the only arc I felt that they left us really hanging was the Amelia arc and how that would have would end. Unless he just never sees her again and he never knows that she came back for him. If that's the case, then I really don't have any complaints about this season and felt it was about as damn close to perfect as you could ever expect from a TV series. And that's pretty awesome in a season eight. I wouldn't put it past them for her to come back. Yeah, I, I've always thought that that was something that needed maybe a little more development. But ultimately, it was still a pretty good ending to just cut it off and because that's what he had to do. He had to just right. cut it off and not have feelings for her anymore, not be wondering what could have happened. Yeah, and the other thing is now that he's kind of forgiven himself, that might make a difference in the relationship as well. He might consider it again. Because I think there was so much unanswered with his relationship with Dean and all that stuff. Those things between them need to get worked out. And now I think he can work out the rest of his life. Yeah. And I think that's what next season is going to be. His plot line is going to be him getting his life back together and also showing Dean how he could get his life worked out and back together. Or at least find a purpose. Yeah, I think so. Yep. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to another season finale, the number one sitcom on television that I think made some good step forward to the show, could solving some problems that Nico was having, I think. So we'll see his thoughts on that. But uh, let's talk now about the Big Bang Theory episode, the Bon Voyage reaction. All started with a Big Bang. Hey! 
Leonard gets a new job opportunity to work abroad for the summer, and Sheldon is feeling a little bit jealous. Meanwhile, Raj tries to move his relationship with Lucy into a new direction by introducing her to his friends, but he fears that she may not like them. My favorite comedic moment from this year's season finale for The Big Bang Theory was the opening to this episode, where Sheldon explained that he was able to make himself comfortable around people by envisioning them as lovable Star Trek characters which included Raj being Uhura and Leonard being an unnamed crew member wearing a red shirt. Although with this scene, the exchange between Sheldon and Leonard in the car making me laugh the most. My favorite part of the episode was Raj convincing Lucy to meet his friends because it came with lines like, Amy, you just can't talk about social anxiety to someone who has social anxiety. It just makes them socially anxious. And Lucy, are you my girlfriend? By the way, if you say no, I'll never be happy again. Not to put you on the spot. Also, I thought it was humorously ironic that Raj blamed Amy for the uncomfortable position that he put Lucy in. But for a story that I thought was going to work, get worked out in typical sitcom fashion, it took a surprising turn. That was quite sad because Lucy broke up with Raj. While Leonard left Penny and Sheldon to go on a research expedition for Stephen Hawk. However, things didn't get too sad because Raj's breakup was met with Sheldon delivering the ultimate bash on Howard, bragging about going into space, with the line, it did not kill me when you went into space. Monkeys went into space, finally putting that gimmick plotline to bed. And at the same time, Raj's breakup came with a silver lining because the feeling of rejection cured him of his fear to talk to women, which is a good thing because over the past two seasons, the show has kind of been inconsistent with this character flaw. As Raj has had interactions with Penny and Lucy, where I've questioned him be drunk or how he could have gotten himself drunk to talk to them. Speaking of Raj overcoming his fear of talking to women, does that mean he's going to get another love interest? Or is he going to get back with Lucy? I guess it's even possible for the writers to make this situation even more interesting by setting up a triangle. But we will see on that one. Because for the other couple that's up on the air, aka Leonard and Penny, are we going to see Leonard come back having fallen in love with another woman? Or is Penny going to end up being the one who moves up? My bet is on Leonard finding the new love because that just seems more interesting. But again, we will see with that as well. And as for my last speculation, I'm wondering if being left alone without Leonard will lead to some changes or development in Sheldon's character. So Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from the Big Bang Theory season finale? And what's your thoughts on the questions I have about next season? My favorite comedic moment was the scene in the car when at the airport and Sheldon was flipping out because they were parked in the red zone. Don't worry, officer. They just love each other. We're not smuggling drugs. I also enjoyed when Raj told Howard to say hello back to Amy and Howard did it in his Raj impression. Hello, Amy. Nice to see you. <laughs> what can I say? It's funnier with the accent. I do hope that this is not the last we've seen of Lucy, as I love Kate Micucci on the show, and felt like she could have been a great fit for the group. I'm not sure if this is the end of Raj and Lucy, but as I said, I hope not. As for Sheldon being alone, I think he will use Penny to supplement his need by taking oh on the role that Leonard would have been fulfilling, and this will lead to Leonard almost feeling not needed when he returns. But I do not see Leonard returning in love with somebody else, or Penny having strayed while he is gone. Rather, I see them realizing when he returns that they are not right for each other, and Leonard maybe ending up dating Sheldon's assistant, if they bring her back into the story. Otherwise, they will just keep them together because it's what people want. I don't really want that, but what other purpose does Penny serve because she's become such a terrible character? Really, can they just dump Kaylee Kuko and get rid of the Penny character? Would that still work? I don't know, and I she's doubt not, they will. Yeah, she's too popular now. Faces in too many places. 
I think she's just become a horrible character, though. Yeah. She was so much better in the early seasons. I just don't understand it. They're almost playing her up because she's a pretty face. And that's what they're using her for. And that's unfortunate because they did have her as a better character. I agree. So I don't know. That's this kind of degrading to her as the actress as well. But that's just me. I don't know. Obviously, everybody else must not be feeling that way. Uh, must not, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps up Big Bang Theory. Interesting to see where they're going to be when they come back, especially with Raj. God, that's two big cliffhangers with Raj they've had. We'll see how this one plays out. Again, this one seems to will probably stay a part of the show a little bit more than the last one. Yeah. We'll see. All right. So with this, we're going to move on to the Doctor Who episode that really asked the question, Doctor Who, literally. God, this one was interesting to me. So, Nika, hopefully you can explain some of it to me because it was a little unclear on the end to the Doctor Who episode that was entitled The Name of the Doctor. The doctor finds himself manipulated for once when someone abducts his friends from throughout time and space, luring him to the one place he could never go. There was a lot of expectation leading into the grandiosely named Season 7 finale, The Name of the Doctor, an episode that had to reveal the truth behind the Doctor's new companion, Clara, address that bold episode title, pay off years of mythological buildup surrounding the ominous planet of Trenzalore, and set up the paradox imploding craziness of the show's biggest ever celebration, the 50th anniversary, which will be the next episode. Only Stephen Moffat could have pulled it off, and pulled it off he did. Straight out of the gate, the adrenaline-rich, epic pace was set, with a Disney montage that immediately set the tone for that 50th anniversary next episode, and made Clara's imminent reveal even more exciting. Matt Smith's Doctor is not the only Doctor that Clara's met in the past. Yes. While, while that teaser was swiftly parked on the back burner, a bigger threat was immediately raised. The Great Intelligence and his Whispermen were on the hunt for the Doctor's closest friends. One hugely entertaining psychic tea party later, and the stage was set for an ultimatum the Doctor simply couldn't refuse. Travel to the prophetically terrifying planet of Trenzalore. Or watch Jenny Strax and Madame Vastra be brutally murdered. You can't kill them, no. (laughs) Dan, was that initial teaser of the Clara reveal in the opening and the abrupt turn of the story to the immediate danger of Jenny Strax and Madame Vastra sufficient to excite you and suck you in for a finale episode? Also, did you enjoy having our favorite side characters in yet another episode? And did it not seem like it was just screaming again for them to get their own series? Oh my God, did it suck me right into this? Yeah. I mean, we've said we've loved these characters. So whenever they pop up, I'm excited to see them. But when Jenny died, oh my God. I'm like, no, not the spinoff. Don't kill her off. <laughs> right. Come on, I want a spinoff. I really do think these characters are possibility for a spinoff. Because they're really great and it was fun how they threw them in. And I think it made this finale that much more epic. I, I mean, this has to be on the scale of the Tenet finale where Rose came back. I mean, it's got to be that big. And I felt like having these characters back that are, I would say, the, the supporting characters of Matt Smith's Doctor. Yes. And this episode was a, a must-have because it was a great way. And, and it really, the only way to get the Doctor into the fight for based on how he explained it. Right. Yeah. Clara is an impossible girl, and that goes way deeper than meeting Matt Smith's Doctor several times. I love that we were treated to a few moments of Clara in respectively styled clothing and varying video qualities, interacting with several incarnations of the Doctor. Warning William Hartnell, chasing Tom Baker, yelling at Sylvester McCoy, he always looks different, but I always know it's him. 
She informed us that she was born to save the doctor. We still didn't know how, but finally we knew who she was, and it was wonderfully delightful. While we let that bit of info sink in and basked in the magic of technology for inserting her into old episodes, the episode kicked off the action in earnest. Now, if you managed to guess Clara's secret pre-episode, then you're a lot cleverer and maybe more psychic than me. But I for, got close. For, but for what is ultimately a pretty perplexing concept, Time Lord death energy causes a rip in the space-time continuum that's exploited by a madman who uses it to rewrite history before a companion sacrifices herself and splinters herself across the time stream to save the day. The execution was surprisingly simple to follow and ultimately satisfying. Dan, were you satisfied with the reveal and ultimate answer to the impossible girl question? Kind of amazed that I was close. Yeah, you were. You were. That the TARDIS was causing it is what your thought was. And yeah. rather it was this somebody rewriting his past. But well, yeah. it kind of was the TARDIS because it was in the what was left of the TARDIS. Right, but it, it wasn't any of the TARDIS's energy or anything right. like that. It was all the doctor's cross, his scar tissue of, from yeah. crossing, crossing time and space. Yeah, but still I, pretty damn close. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. I thought it was cool. Yeah, I mean, seeing her in scenes with old doctors, it was like, whoa, what's going on here? God, it's amazing how they match the video quality. It's it's amazing how the effects could be that good now. Yeah, to line that up, that was just brilliant. I didn't think we'd see anything like that. Well, if you imagine that the really the first time we ever really saw that was Tom Hanks in. Force Gump. Yep. And the improvement in the quality of inserting people into historical films is progressed so much in the last 20 years. And that was really cool to see. Yes, I agree. I agree. And God, Doctor Who is on the cutting edge. Oh, always. That's television, special effects. So this was just a step farther. This was brilliant. Yeah. So this was very good. Ironically enough, while the fact that we never heard the answer to the title teaser will undeniably irk the fans who have been waiting for the Doctor's real name, we were joking beforehand that it'd be something like Bob or Clive, <laughs> the lack of a big revelation said more about the show and characters from a narrative and emotional point of view than any huge name reveal could have. I think I remember Moffat saying that he knew the Doctor's name, but that he probably would never reveal it during his tenure on Doctor Who. Ultimately, the name is fundamentally unimportant. All we've ever needed to know about the Doctor is expressed through his relationships with those around him. And when the chips are down, it was heartwarming to see him risk everything he ever was to yet again save the day. Dan, were you disappointed in not learning the Doctor's name, or were you expecting as much? I, if it was going to happen, I did think it was going to happen in this episode. Okay. Because of the 50th anniversary coming up. That seems more like something that would happen in that episode right. than the setup. So I was not, I wasn't expecting that. I'm really not disappointed. I think that would ruin the excitement of it. Because, I mean, that's the one of the biggest kept secrets in British television history. Yeah. Going to reveal it. Mm, you know, I, I don't know if it would be as good. Because once it's over, it's over. And it's not going to be magical anymore. So I don't know. Yeah. It's probably a series finale sort of reveal. If it ever ends. If it ever ends. Yeah. Right. Or if they did like a big release, theatrical release, they did a full-on Doctor Who blockbuster movie. Yeah. That might be an, a, a time when it would be re revealed. But it's got to be official. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm saying the official Doctor Who movie. Doctor Who yeah. movie. Okay, I agree, yeah. Also, is all the actors that play the Doctor still alive? Oh, that's a good question that I don't know the answer to. I want to say 
no, because I I think William Hartnell act. was I think he's I think he is passed on because they just did a documentary about him and they used the actor who played Filch in Harry Potter to be him. Okay, so I do believe that he is passed on, but I don't know that they all are. Okay. I have loved River Song's character since she was first introduced during Tenet's 10 Days and the library episode that we learned was her ultimate last time seeing the Doctor. It was so great to see Alex Kingston again, who returned for what feels like true closure for River Song and her involvement in the Who universe. In a scene tender enough to provide a few character surprises. Sure, we didn't get to hear the Doctor's name, but his confession over his fear of saying goodbye revealed more emotional layers and said more about his character than any moniker ever could. And how about that final kiss? Wow, that was good. I liked it. Dan, was this a fitting end for a character we've both loved so much? I know you were expecting an Amy and Rory reference. Did I miss it or was it not there? And were you disappointed in not getting one if it wasn't? My mind was so blown by everything else that was going on. This kind of just seemed small to me. Oh, really? To be honest. That's, I mean, it was great. It was fine. I just, my brain is going a mile a minute with everything that was happening. So I really didn't even think of Amy and Rory. I mean, that's terrible to say. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I didn't even realize there was no mentioning because that's just how much this episode sucked me into the story. Yeah. That I was so into, I was so into River and the Doctor that I completely forgot Amy and Rory. Yeah. I mean, that's how well they did it. And this was River after the Tenet episode where he met her for the first time, right? Yes, this was her consciousness in the library reaching out to Madame Vastra and connecting to Clara. Okay, so that made sense. And that I think that was needed too. Mm-hmm. But is this the last time we're going to see her, you think? I do think so. I think that was okay. – I think she faded from the library. That was what he said. You. There is no way that you should still be because you're an echo. There is no way that right. you could have survived in the in the library for this long. And she said, "It's because I I never got a goodbye." And so now that she's had her proper goodbye, she faded. And that may leave the door open for Clara to be the love story now. Yes, it absolutely opens it up for that. So it doesn't make the Doctor look bad. Like that one episode where everyone got mad because Amy tried to come out of the Doctor got her wedding night. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we don't have a situation like that. All right. Ultimately, this was a great finale that really ramped things up for the paradox imploding craziness of the show's biggest ever ever celebration, as I mentioned before, the 50th anniversary, which is coming in November. Also, something that I really loved about this episode was that it was Clara who ultimately saved the day by sacrificing herself after coming to the realization that her fate was somewhat inevitable. She was the impossible girl because the situation demanded that she become the impossible girl. The idea that you can be a copy of yourself and still be yourself is an interesting one. But the real test will be what Clara and the doctor do with this knowledge going forward. Now that Clara knows her role and knows that there are many of her scattered throughout time, will it change her? Will it abate her existential wonderings about time travel? Will it speed up the romance between her and the doctor? Or will she feel somewhat weird that her only purpose throughout all of time is to save him? I can't wait to find out all the answers to these questions. Dan, final thoughts or if you have any thoughts on any of those questions. Well, it's going to be a mind fart for Moffat to try to retcon and tie everything to all of the doctors. Especially the recent stuff that we know backwards and forwards and left and right up and down. Right. So that's going to be interesting to see how it all fits into that. Right. I'm wondering if they're going to say that Clara has something to do with how Rose got out of the pocket dimension for those episodes. 
That's a possibility for sure. That's about as far as I could go with it because I don't know the other doctor so well. Got Eccleston that just could be a brief thing. That's not too complicated. What I'm confused about is John Hurt. Is he the doctor of the future? I think so. So is he going to be the, is he the final doctor? Yeah, I do believe he is the final doctor. Okay, because I've surprised David with that far, because now you're in a mess, because John Hurt's an older actor. Well, they probably are going to film his inevitable ending So you think scenes. the 50th anniversary is going to be a scene called The Doctor Dies? That's a potential, but I think right. it might be that they just shoot whatever they want to shoot with, with him, and then lock it away in a vault. Okay. And hold it till they end up ending the series. Okay. Because, I mean, I, I always thought the series would end with him dying, saving the galaxy. Yeah. I mean, that's just how I thought it would end. So I'm like, John Hurt, what? If they end this show 20 years from now, they're going to have a problem. Right. So, I, I mean, I just hope that's cleared with everybody. Got okay with that's what they want to do. Now, in reality, they probably are doing what you suggested and just going to show possibly where his death goes. But then explain it away in another way that that was only one of his possible deaths and that they changed okay. it in the 50th anniversary special. So they'll have, you know, if they have him, it's going to be John Hurt, that's one doctor. Matt Smith, that's two. David Tennant, that's three. So guaranteed three doctors in that. Possibly some other ones that we just haven't heard about. I think it would be great if we saw, even if they pulled a Coachella and put in like holograms and used previous scenes from other doctors and brought those back like they sort of did in this episode, but to yeah. more extent, you know, and actually had the doctors interacting. That would be great. I would say that they just are going to surprise people. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a no. It's just they're going to surprise people. Yeah, I think so. And I think the only person who's come out and said no was Christopher Eggleston. I think they did say he said no. Okay. So they said he okay. Yeah. I think he and said that he was not that interested. So they could do it with technology, I think. Yeah, very easily, like what they did here. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is the villain of this episode. Is he a reoccurring villain from the series in the past? We saw I him in the. Him. We saw him in the, the snowman episode. The snowman episode. I believe he was also the man behind the Wi-Fi episode, the oh, okay. Great Intelligence. And so I do believe that he so was. This is a reoccurring big time villain. Just from this series. It's not I was, from the originals. Because I was expecting to see a build-up to the Master. Because I feel like the 50th anniversary has to have the Master. Uh, they've done the Master so many times. I just don't think... Because I think but they've... It's, it's, I mean, it's like, you know... They've already done it twice in this reboot, though, you know? So I think it would be overkill for that. Yeah, he is the nemesis, but I think they did a pretty good wrap-up the last time with his character. That is true. So I don't want to take anything from that. Yeah, and I don't know if I want Cumberbatch to come in as the master, because that just doesn't work now. But yeah. Yeah. That's another discussion. We'll see where they go. Yes. All right. So are you ready to move into the rundown? Yeah, let's do the rundown. Let's get on with that. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's Pope for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. Trauma. All right, we're going to kick things off with Sunday and jump into Family Guy with a decent episode entitled Farmer Guy. Family Guy. 
Quahog is getting more and more dangerous, but after being robbed, Peter decides to buy a farm to avoid more bad things happening to his family. It turns out to become a part of the problem in this new house of theirs. This week's episode was merely so-so. Really, I don't quite know how an episode of Family Guy that's a vague take on Breaking Bad by having the Griffins sell meth could be so dull. But somehow, this episode seemed to pull it off, as this was one of the more mediocre and disappointing half-hours of the season. There's something comical in the premise of Peter Griffin, Meth Kingpin, right? He'd probably find a way to botch it. He's not exactly Walter White. Yet still the story never went anywhere interesting with it. Suddenly Quahog was this dangerous place the family had to move, and then a totally random tornado caused them to finally explore their basement, where they discovered the meth lab. The humor from this episode came from mostly just random asides. Brian getting the wrong impression from thinking that the family sending him off to the farm was actually code for them killing him, which caused him to pull a gun and take Stewie hostage. That was one of the better moments. These random asides had no implications on the rest of the story. They were just swiftly abandoned. They were as much cutaway jokes as the actual cutaway jokes. Really, when the best humor is all but disconnected from the actual plot of the episode, that's a bad sign. Although there were enough laughs in these aside jokes to keep this episode a mediocre and not miserable episode. But it, it kind of worked. It was okay. Not too bad. The now Simpsons gonna... did it. Why not the Griffins? <laughs> Why? The Simpsons did it. Exactly. Now we're going to move on to The Simpsons with a interesting episode, Fabulous Faker Boys. Marge encourages Bart to explore his creative side, but his initial riddance quickly subsides when Marge hires Slava's beautiful daughter, Zadia, as his new piano constructor. Meanwhile, Homer is shocked when he loses the last two remaining hairs cut his head, and employs a wide variety of headgear to try and keep his newfound baldness a secret from Marge. Though it's not the season finale, the Simpsons writers apparently saw the fabulous Faker boys as a chance to stuff in as many minor characters as possible. For example, Lisa suspiciously says, Something smells fishy, and the sea captain popped up out of nowhere exclaiming, Yar, that'd be me. The main plot of the Fabulous Faker Boys has Bart improbably becoming a piano prodigy, something that should pose an existential crisis for Lisa, given that her passion for the saxophone is probably the only thing keeping her from a nervous breakdown. But Lisa is sidelined as we get to this week's main guest voices, Jane Krakowski as the beautiful and heavy-accented Russian piano teacher named Zenya, and Bill Hader as her mobster-like father named Slava. So we get another Barton love story, and maybe it was just a meta joke that he doesn't seem to care that it just ends, as if it's happened to him a couple of dozen times before this. Next week brings a double episode for the 24th season finale, the second one with guest voice Seth MacFarlane as a man who threatens The Simpsons' marriage. Like we need that again. At least we're promised singing, which rarely goes wrong on this show. I'm looking forward to that, but not much more. It was kind of just a there episode for Simpsons this week. But now we're going to move on to an episode that was anything but just average. As we talk about Monday night's How I Met Your Mother, Something New. As the gang prepares to head out to Robin and Barney's wedding, Ted invites Lily to the house he's finally finished fixing up. Meanwhile, Robin and Barney's night of relaxation is ruined by an obnoxious couple. Commercial takes the baby out a last-minute trip to Minnesota to see his family. With this episode, there's no point in building up to the point we all want to discuss. <laughs> 
After eight seasons of teasing, foreshadowing, and some clever camera work, How I Met Your Mother took its biggest leap yet in finally introducing us to Ted's future wife, the mother. Oh my god, yeah! Meet Christine Milotti, the actress behind The Yellow Umbrella. Although she's mostly an unknown, she did three episodes of The Sopranos and an appearance as sexy baby Abby Flynn in 30 Rock, which is where she really got noticed. She also just recently finished playing the female lead in the Broadway production of Once, based on the 2006 movie, getting a Tony nomination along the way. And I can't be the only one to notice this, but she also bears a passing resemblance to How I Met Your Mother's Alison Hannigan, right? So, Dan, what did you think of the reveal of the mother, both the actual scene and the choice of the actress? Huh. Well, here's my thought on this here. I feel like she's going to end up being a fusion of Robin and Lily. Yeah, she kind of th- looks – she kind of has that yep. look. If you threw yep. her to throw those two actors in a bag, mash them together, and the new one comes out, it would be this actress. That's what I thought. And also she's got a cuteness to her. Oh, yeah. That I think Ted needs. Yeah, she it's is him. really cute, but she's not ridiculously like model gorgeous. You know, right. She's very attractive and very cute, but – She's realistic, good-looking. Right. And all the girls that Ted's kind of been with before that all kind of have some sense of, like, macho-ness to him. Or kind of like a I am woman, hear me roar kind of vibe, if that makes sense. Because his relationship with Zoe was had such friction in it. And, you know, she was very angry. I want to fight the man. We know how Robin is. And you kind of have to laugh about that with her guns and weapons and all that stuff. And then... Stella was very, you know, independent woman. I'm going to make it on my own. And she seems like someone who can make it on her own and manage, but she she needs a better half. You know, she needs Ted. And I think that's going to pay off really well with that. So I, I think that choice is very good. And then if you make her a combination of two characters that people really like, I mean, people really like Robin's character, people really like Lily's character, I think you're good at that department. But now the interesting thing is, what is... Lily's family, does she, is she an only child? Uh, yes. Okay. Because I was going to say that they could say that she was Lily's sister, but if they've not said that she's had any, uh, if she's the only child, then never mind. Yeah, that doesn't really make sense to me, her yeah, being the, the, the sister, because why wouldn't they mention that, you know? Right. Now that he said that, I was like, eh, that's a good word. But yeah. it's a good thought. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dan. So what were your thoughts on the C story of Barney and Robin? Pranking that douchey couple at their favorite restaurant. Did you like it or was it just kind of. Uh, it was just basic sitcom, Power Met Your Mother plotline. Yeah. You know, it felt like any, it something they would put in any other episode. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was had some funny moments, but ultimately could have done without. Yeah. So for you, Dan, did the rest of the episode seem sort of boring to you? I mean, was the Marshall's mom arc funny to you or just playing a waste of time like I sort of felt it was? I felt like you needed to get Lily and Ted together. Right, exactly. And this was the only way they could do that. And so, but the the problem is with that, because I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but is this what next season's going to be? Where they're going to do pointless plot lines with people to get them in certain places? Potentially. Because I don't know if you guys caught the part about the longest wedding weekend ever, because that's how I met your mother's final season will take place entirely over the course of Barney and Robin's wedding weekend. The creators have said that it will be the entire ninth season will be set in that one weekend. That means that there will be some flashbacks and flash forwards, and it would be odd that 
not to have any, given the show has used both in the past a bunch. In terms of the central storyline, while we have met the mother, Ted still might not until far into the season, perhaps even the series finale, which is actually what I was thinking. She, he would see her and see her on stage and she would have met the other people and there's going to be... It seems like the final scene that they showed at the end of the season eight premiere might be the final scene of the series. See, I think it's going to go... That's going to be where the finale starts off. Okay. And that their entire finale will be their story in the finale will be them talking on at the station and then riding the train together back to new york which will be how they start their relationship and where they really hit it off and then they start dating it or he asks her on a date for the finale or the final scene and she says yeah let's do that and then it fades to black and i think that's how and he calls everyone and says i'm not moving to chicago yeah yep Bay's comments also make it clear we'll be seeing Milady throughout season nine as she has been elevated to a series regular for season nine. So the question is whether she's interacting with other main characters at the wedding or other characters entirely or whether they will allow flash forwards to show Ted and the mother getting in any notable way or they're going to do what I think they're going to do and tell the story of actually how they met and not jump forward with those two into a flash forward, but maybe some of the other characters in flash forwards and flashbacks yeah. too. So how do you, Dan, predict this will play out? And do you, do you like the idea of the entire season revolving around the wedding weekend? Or do you think that's a little strange? Well, Carter Bay said something in entertainment weekly. He said to everyone that there are also going to be three episodes that are going to be complete flashback. Okay. And so I think that's going to be explaining the mother's perspective of those episodes where we always saw her, like the night party with Ted yeah, and the, him going to the apartment and stuff. So I think there's going to be three episodes that we'll see from her perspective. And then I think we're going to get a lot of scenes of her meeting the rest of the gang. Yeah. I said originally that I did think in the flashbacks that we would see a lot of the key episodes from the series the main things shown from her perspective, like yeah. the time she was in the shower and heard and it'll be her hearing Ted come over and we will see some of those scenes and the near misses and the the times where she was at and your mother was at that party or your mother yeah. was at the bar that night. And she was in that class. She was in that class. Exactly. Yeah. And so we will see everything from her perspective and they will actually fulfill all those promises to us. And I think that's going to be good. And I think and we're gonna, it's yeah. going to be a fun season. And we're going to be like, oh, duh. Oh, my God. <laughs> Some of them are going to be ridiculously close. Yeah. The other thing is I think she's going to have seeds with maybe Barney and Robin and Marshall and Lily at the wedding mm -hmm. for us to see why they like her. Uh-huh. And why we would understand her sitting on the front porch with the rest of them. Yep. I think they need to accept her as well as Ted. So I think those little scenes will help us realize that they'll all accept her. Even if the end is him just meeting her. Again, you know, it's just the two of them in the final episode. Or the majority of the final episode. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. But now I think it's about time that we move on. And we'll throw it over to Michael to take over with the revolution section. And his review of this week's episode, The Longest Day. Thanks, guys. Hey, everyone. Michael here to talk about this week's episode of Revolution, The Longest Day. Uh, this was another really good episode of Revolution. Well, I want to say it's great, but it was definitely 
another move in the right direction for the show. This episode was written by Anne Cofell Saunders, who Smallville fans will know as a writer in the later seasons of the show. Therefore, this episode had to be good. The first thing I'm going to talk about this week is the Monroe thing. In this episode, Monroe kills his last remaining friend and partner in the Monroe Republic, Jeremy Baker, who is play, portrayed by Mark Pellegrino, who most people will know as Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan on Supernatural, or the fulcrum agent named Edgar on Chuck. At this point... Jeremy just wants Monroe to be a friend again. He just wants him to be an actual human being again, an actual person, instead of just this rough, hard military general with no ties to anything, no connections, just there. And Jeremy really tries to get him out of that phase by offering to go to drinks with him, or I guess really it's the other way around. Um, Jeremy and his friends are going to have drinks to celebrate their victories against the rebels, and they're inviting Monroe to join them. And he does. And in the process of maneuvering between buildings, Monroe is shot at. And Monroe suspects that this assassination attempt is done by none other than Jeremy himself. Which is incorrect, because they find out that it's a spy from the Georgia Federation later in the episode. But he does end up putting Jeremy in front of a firing squad, and kills his last remaining friend. Monroe really doesn't trust anybody ever since both Neville and Miles, two of his best friends, betrayed him throughout the series. I mean, obviously, Miles did this before the series um, starts, but Neville did this just recently. And now that there's an attempt on his life, he's freaking out, and he, he doesn't know what to do, but... Does this really, is this really okay? And obviously the answer is no. I mean, it's not okay to kill someone under that suspicion. It's not really okay to kill anyone at all. But it's very interesting to think about Monroe, the psychology of Monroe because he's a lot different than many villains that you've seen on TV before. He's not just this general guy who's trying to take over the world. I mean, obviously he wants to do that, but there's a personable aspect to him. And in my opinion, that was kind of lost by the end of this episode. And I don't know if that's something we're ever going to get back. Maybe in the finale, because we have three more episodes left. But I'm not really convinced about that one way or another. In this episode, the main event is the Monroe Republic attacks the Rebel Georgia Alliance um, base camp. And in that attack, Jason is critically injured. And, oh, well, kind of a build, a whole building kind of falls on Charlie. And they both miraculously survive because Miles, Nora, and Neville band together to save them. And Neville actually has to save his own son. And he does so willingly. And, man, is that scene really great between them. It really seems like their relationship is starting to get better now that they're on the same side. I honestly don't think that Neville really belonged on Monroe's side. And I don't mean that just in the sense of we didn't want him there, because he is a great villain, and I think Giancarlo Esposito plays a fantastic villain. However, I think he also portrays a really good anti-hero. And I'm really anxious to see where this relationship between him and Jason is going to go, if Jason's going to end up wanting to trust him again, or be under his command again. 
and how that really affects Jason's relationship with Charlie, which by the end of this episode, it seems like they're starting to get together because while Jason is in the hospital bed, him and Charlie start to kind of make out. Not even really kiss, they're just kind of going at it. In this episode, one of the big emotional plot points besides their relationship is Nora and Miles. And this is really interesting because last episode we know they kind of got together. In this episode, we see the aftermath of that. And Nora is kind of afraid that Miles is going to die. And she's going to have to witness it. And she tries to kind of break this relationship off. But Miles, Miles can't do it. And when they're rescuing Charlie and Jason and going out looking for him, they kind of freak out a little bit over each other. And ultimately, at the end of the episode, Nora is captured by Monroe's forces and delivered directly to Monroe, who does seem to know who she is, which is interesting. But Miles loses someone again, and Miles is sick of losing people. So he's going to do everything in his power to get her back by the end of this season, if not the next episode. Then there's that secondary plot point of the episode with Rachel and Aaron. And this story always seems to be the second-rate story, and I understand why, because they're not really the main characters of the show. But I think it's a really interesting and really heart-wrenching part of the Revolution Saga in the sense of Aaron is everything that he thinks humanity should be, and Rachel is just plain revenge. The only reason she's going to put the lights back on is that Miles has a good shot to kill Monroe this time. And after after getting Danny's nanite into Rachel to heal her leg, they're caught by some people who have have people who are sick. And they think that they can heal one of the children that is sick. And Rachel says that they can, and once they go back to the computer store to get their equipment, Rachel turns on them. And Aaron doesn't like this at all, and I don't blame him. I I don't like that at all either. But she did. But according to her, she did what she had to do, and she would. She, unlike Aaron, would have no problem leaving him. Finally, one of the more revealing parts of this episode were the flashbacks, and this is more history between Miles and Rachel. But we find out that when Rachel first arrived at the Monroe Republic. She did so with the intention to free some prisoners. So she tricked Miles into thinking that she could put the power back on herself uh, and that she knew more about the blackout than her husband, but she did not. And she did free the prisoners, but she was still in Miles' custody, who eventually delivered her to Monroe, which is why she's been stuck there for so long. But we also find out that Miles and Rachel had an affair together which Rachel deeply regrets. And it, it really saddens me that Ben Matheson died in the pilot because we saw a few um, few episodes ago, I want to say it was like six or seven episodes ago, we saw that Miles, or no, we saw that Ben and Rachel had their last goodbye together with uh, their kids. And I, it's come to my attention that I don't think a lot of, those tensions and a lot of those issues that they had were ever resolved 
and Ben Matheson kind of went to his grave without really knowing if his wife was alive, without really knowing that she loved him. And I think Rachel in the present realizes this, but because of Danny's death now, she's put it on hold just for revenge. And I think she needs to be more focused on trying to show Charlie that she loves her and trying to build that relationship with Charlie than revenge because if she dies, if Charlie dies again without really knowing that her mother loves her or vice versa, I don't know. It's just not a really good cycle in my opinion. Anyway, guys, uh, this was another really good episode of Revolution. I'm really enjoying the series. And I'm hoping it will continue to be as good as it has been as of late. So, three more episodes of the season. Very excited. Glad we got renewed for a 22-episode season two. And I'll catch you next week. Back to you guys. Thanks, Michael. Now let's move on to the new sci-fi hit series, Defiance, with the episode The Serpent's Egg. While Arissa meets a face cut of her past, Dolan and Amanda take a trip to deliver script for the new Bagel branch, only to have their land coach stop by Jackers. The Serpent's Eggs was a solid enough episode, and at the end of the season, I think we'll look back and it will probably end up being the episode where Defiance started to transition into its quote, bigger plots. And I put, quote, bigger in quotes because it's not as if the scheming of the Tars, the interpersonal conflicts of the Macaulays, whatever case of the week Nolan is dealing with at any given time, and Amanda's struggle to govern the town aren't big stories. They are, for sure. And they can be, and they have been at times, but those plots are the stuff of melodrama and procedurals, two things that I enjoy, but that don't necessarily scream high-stakes storytelling. It's tough to do melodrama without stronger, more interesting characters. Only Dadek, Stama, Ersa, and occasionally Nolan really grabbed me so far. And the show's more procedural plots have been hit or miss, again, so far. So it, it can benefit Defiance to work in some threats that are located outside or just around the edges of the town. Already there's whatever Nikki and Birch have been planning and how the golden knot that the Macaulays possess fits into that story arc. But now we have the Earth Republic's ambassador, Oliphantenity, played by Jane McLean, and Arissa's position as the prophesized devouring mother. I very much enjoyed the stagecoach hijacking arc this week in this week's episode. It was an old Western plot that I was happy to see the show utilize because it never fails to entertain. Though I did miss seeing people climb on top or under the coach to have to do something, like jump to the bandit's vehicle or fix a wheel or something silly and fun like that. However, the standoff and the double-crossing bits were fine enough, and I didn't mind it too much. I'm mildly exciting about, about this Ambassador Olfen character, though, and the potential that she represents to disrupt the status quo of the series, similar to the Volge in the pilot episode. The Earth Republic as a whole is an external threat to defiance that can likely unite all the otherwise opposing factions in the town in order to keep defiance operating as it has been. Its independent streak, like the stagecoach plot, fits snugly into the traditions of the Western genre and frontier cities disinterested in a larger government entity having a say in local governance and economics. So while Defiance may need that railroad to prosper and likely survive, they'll do it on their own without the Earth Republic. 
Olfen, as an individual character, provided Amanda with a new rival, something I think Amanda will need as the show goes forward. Keeping Daytac and the town council in line, plus being up for re-election soon, will be challenging enough, but an Earth Republic campaign against her will offer not only an interesting challenge, but also a way for her to prove herself a capable leader in defending the town against all sorts of threats, not to mention allowing Julie Benz's character to finally flourish and grow into the character we all know she's capable of playing. I do have a theory that Arissa being the de- this devouring mother will be will somehow tie into the stuff Nikki is planning is and is connecting to the golden knot and the glyphs the Macaulay boy found in the mine. Shaft last week. I don't think it's really that much of a stretch and if it doesn't play out this way, I'd be very surprised. It just when any bit of media tosses out a phrase like the chosen one that you can sort of predict the show's destination in some ways. In any case, it was character development that will likely end up serving a larger purpose on down the road, likely resulting in Arissa's visions becoming clearer and more immediate in their value. Anyway, that's enough for me. Dan, what were your thoughts on this episode of Defiance? Well, you said it needed to be more epic, and that's kind of what was my complaint last week. Yeah. Especially with this being based on a video game. Because I thought this episode did it with the stagecoach plotline, yes. Come, I would have liked to see the jumping from the vehicle as well. But this did a pretty good job of covering that. I'm glad we got more on Arissa's backstory, but that needs to get picked up a little more, I think. Yeah. That's the only thing. But again, every episode seems to be getting better. God, they seem to be getting better on the action. So I'm just going to kind of wait this one out and see if it'll keep getting better as we head towards the finale. And I think once we get more plot lines in place, get more things fleshed out, it's going to keep getting better. Okay. And I think Julie Benz's character got another improvement this week. Because we thought she was underused before that. Got out with her having a rival, it really brought out a good character. And I think we're going to get an interesting triangle between the two sisters and Nolan. Because last week kind of seemed about Nolan's relationship with the one sister. Right. With Kenya. God, this week was more with Amanda. Yep. So I'm, I'm thinking they're building up a love triangle as well with that. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, we mentioned that last week. And I think we're both on the same page that that's where it's going to go. And I do like that there's an Earth Federation that's kind of shady. That's interesting as well. Yeah, that external force is going to be important for the series going forward. And may have something to do with the mayor and what's going on with that. Yeah. Yep. Coming the evil mayor. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. I think it's about time to jump into another great sci-fi show with Warehouse 13 and the episode The Big Snag. An artifact sucks Pete and Micah into a 1940s detective novel, but their lives are in real danger. Meanwhile, Artie, Steve, and Claudia go after a phantom car thief. This was a fun episode that only a show as imaginative as Warehouse 13 could have pulled off by the writers coming up with an artifact that transported Pete and Micah into a 1940s detective novel, which gave the majority of this episode the look of a black-and-white noir film, complete with a jazz soundtrack, a retro opening title sequence, Pete doing James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart impressions, and the classic femme fatale. However, with this episode delivering throwbacks to something old, it delivered something new by Micah's presence bringing a strong female protagonist get to the hard-boiled detective genre. I also loved the decision to cast one of our favorite television actors, Enrico Colantoni, as the mystery writer who found himself trapped in his own novel over grief for his deceased wife. Since I know from his involvement with 
Veronica Mars, which we mentioned in the News with Nico section, that he is an Avenoir fan. On top of that, as we know from him, playing Elias, a person of interest. Our friend Enrico is very good, playing the kind of character who keeps us guessing on what he's thinking, but somehow grows on us. And it paid off brilliantly here, allowing us to buy the twist of this particular Norse story, having a happy ending that sparks some more romance could Pete and Micah's relationship. As for Artie's Steve and Claudia's plotline, which took place in color with catching the Phantom Car Thief, I thought this whole investigation was one big product placement ad, because there was this obnoxiously long commercial enticing people to buy a Toyota Prius, because it's the car that warehouse agents drive. But then this story got kind of cool, got retro itself, as Artie got in a Starsky and Hutch style car chase with the Phantom Thief, complete with funky sounding 70s music. Unfortunately, what I thought was a very fun scene with Artie that began to break him out of his funk caused by inadvertently killing Lena was something Steve considered to be recklessness. God, he reported it to the Regents, thinking that they are going to help Artie, but instead they decide to browse him. So Nico, does this mean we're going to see a story where the warehouse agents and Mrs. Fredericks turn on the Regents to protect Artie? Can also, did you enjoy Pete and Micah's fun adventure inside of a 1940s detective novel? Can Rico Cole and Tony showing up along the way? Can the twist that occurred at the end of the episode that was put on the noir genre? Dan, I love this episode because it felt much like what we got early in this show's run story-wise, but with the great character development we've gotten recently in the later years of the show. I love the idea of being trapped in a book and living out the story, especially this one that was a noir detective novel that Micah and I love so much. Enrique Colatoni did a superb job, and I loved that his character got that happy ending in the end of the story, and it turned out to be a romance rather than a noir detective novel, or a crime novel. I actually thought that this might be the episode where we saw more Pete and Micah romance movement. Maybe in a scene where they were worried that they'd end up stuck forever in the novel, and Pete would say something like, is it really the worst ending for a warehouse agent? At least we'd be together. Or something like that. And yeah. they'd have one of those knowing looks or something. Yeah, I know it's sappy, but with these two, I don't care. I've always loved their friendship and partnership, but they've given us hints in the past that they are destined to be together. And I hope now that they know they have a final season coming up, they Pick start progressing that aspect of the story soon. I do want to see it happen, and I think that that's going to be something that we do see in those six episodes of the finale season, and it's going to be good. Finally, I I don't think the regents are going to bronze Artie. The head regent said that Jinx needs to trust them and that they have Artie's best interests in mind. I see them taking Artie out of the rotation and forcing him to get help, but in a warehousey way. I think it will actually be a fun thing for the audience since his arc has been so dark lately. So I actually see it potentially being a really fun and lighthearted thing rather than something continuing a dark arc for him. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. Okay. Good. Yeah, the episode is what it is. I want to see more going on with an overarching story. I want little hits at what's going on with the James Marster story. But besides that, I'm good with it right now. Yeah, yeah, we definitely need to get back to that overarching story. But it was fun to have one that was completely devoid of any of that and just right. was a standalone, especially this episode, because with them going into the book, which I loved, I absolutely oh, did yeah. love, it wouldn't have made sense to them also them being out of the picture when they're going up against the big oh, yeah, I agree. or something like that. So I think it worked great in this episode. But for next week, I think we should get back to it. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, this episode, in terms of the, the noir stuff, that should have been standalone. And that was just a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. 
So with that, I think we're going to move on to talking about New Girl. Yeah, we'll jump into Tuesday with a great New Girl season finale with the episode Elaine's Big Day. The second season ends with Jess and Nick making a decision about their relationship. Meanwhile, Schmidt and Winston plan to sabotage Cece's wedding, but a surprise announcement throws an additional wrench into the plans. Taylor Swift appears as a wedding guest. This week's New Girl dealt with the doomed-from-the-start ceremony between Cece and Sharon. Of course, the big conflict in this week's finale wasn't centered on the bride and groom, but rather who else? Nick and Jess. Since Jess's father, Bob, played by Rob Reiner, had come to town, things had been a little rocky in our quirky couple. But Cece's wedding was a chance for Nick to prove that he could be a decent human being, at least for a day, and not stir up any trouble. That well-meaning idea was soon put to the test, however, when Schmidt came back from a revealing eye conversation with Cece, prompting him to sabo the wedding. This was a fitting theme for the episode, considering the guy's recurring want to prank throughout the season, especially Winston's. I particularly enjoyed how Schmidt gave Winston the go-ahead to get his full-on crazy for this one, and full-on crazy they did, starting with the dubious airhorn horse prank, and later the hilariously timed interlude of Cotton-Eyed Joe as Cece walked down the aisle. I think my favorite bit from this was Nick's fist-pumping flashback, because as Nick put it, it's just so damn catchy. Throughout the various pranks, I did like how Schmidt was the one to explain to Jess how Nick had tried to stay out of the mischief in an attempt to oppress her. While this season has lacked some focus in growing Nick's character, the finale did a good job of redeeming some of his childlike tendencies without outright changing his persona. In fact, the underlying conflict between Nick and Jess this week was overall very well done. The payoff to that conflict was later revealed during Winston's over-enthusiastic coup de grace as he, Nick, and Jess all got stuck in the air ducts with a rabid badger. Here, Nick finally got Jess to admit that he is not a healthy person, while simultaneously and successfully ruining Cece's wedding. I was afraid that Nick and Jess might actually split up over this, but I was glad that they were able to resolve their issues in the end and maintain their budding relationship for next season. It was also a nice touch having Winston push Nick in the right direction by referencing Nick's father, sort of tying the whole season together. Taylor Swift's cameo was short and sweet, and most importantly, hilarious as a tongue-in-cheek embodiment of an actual Taylor Swift song. It was still comforting to see Cece finally come forward with her feelings for Schmidt, although we can probably guess how things will play out between Schmidt, Cece, and Elizabeth, I do think it's a matter best left for next season. Until then, I'll be counting the days until my favorite comedy returns. Yeah, now let's move on to an episode of Grimm that finally started or did what I've been talking about for weeks, maybe the entire season, and that's finally resolved the Juliet not knowing and become part of the Team Grimm. So let's talk about The Walking Dead. While Juliet tries to convince Monroe to tell her the truth about the Wesson, Nick and Hank investigate a series of murders of people who have already died. Meanwhile, Stefania and Frau Petsch go to war with each other over the fate of Adeline's unborn child. Much like in some episodes of The Walking Dead, the heavily hyped zombie action was generally lacking in Grimm's penultimate season 2 installment. So put your cricket bats away, my fellow doomsday preppers, it looks like the invasion commences next week. 
With her memory on the men, Juliet's confidence in assertion has grown, and once she remembered heading over to Monroe's house the night she fell into her coma, she was determined to learn why Nick had taken her there in the first place. Monroe, of course, was apprehensive about getting his vogue on and going full bloopbod in front of Juliet, but with Rosalie and Bud and their somewhat more cute and cuddly Vesson to pad the shock, I think Juliet handled the situation fairly well, all things considered, and I was glad they finally brought her in on the Team Grimm. At times, The Walking Dead felt plotting with the abundance of exposition required to set everything up for next week's finale, but that really excites me for next week. Renard has a lot to deal with heading into the finale, a surprise visit from his royaler-than-thou brother, news of a rogue royal baby, and an impending zombie apocalypse, though he doesn't know much about that last one yet. I'm really enjoying the trend of Hank and Nick keeping Renard abreast of the Vesson happenings. I'm always concerned that their willingness to share information may come back to bite them in the ass, since Renard's allegiance is still largely to himself and pretty much himself. Plus, his motives aren't entirely clear. But for a guy who doesn't have much support from or allegiance to his own family, Renard's inclusion in Nick and Hank's club could come into much bigger play later on, probably next season. The reveal that the Baron was creating zombies, busloads of zombies, on Prince Eric's behalf was a sweet payoff, and I'm definitely excited for next week's finale. The real meat of the season may have taken a while to prepare, and it may not have always been the most consistently thrilling meal. But with many of the season-long stories finally converging, Grimm has the opportunity to end the season with an epic bang, and I'm really looking forward to it. With a great Grimm episode wrapping up our Tuesday night, it's now time to move into Wednesday night with everybody's favorite CW show, the season one finale of Arrow, entitled Sacrifice. In my favorite season finale for this year, when they discover Malcolm's plan, Gulliver and Diggle try to stop him, but lose Felicity to a police arrest. Meanwhile, Thea learns that Roy is in danger, and goes to the Glades, to danger herself as well. While Oliver risks what's left of his friendship with Tommy for the sake of honesty. In the past, Oliver, Shadow, and Slade try to stop Friars from bringing down a passenger jet. Finale discussion. Let's talk about the island and their little showdown. What did you guys feel about Oliver making his first kill with a bow and arrow by killing Edward Fires? And how did you guys feel about Team Island saving the Ferris Air from getting hit by the missile? I felt it was very Indiana Jones-like. You know, when he got on the missile launcher, <laughs> and they were driving it around and stuff. I could see that. that. Felt I, like never saw them. I never Jones. saw them. Oh my god, Andy, your education oh, needs no. to begin now. <laughs> you didn't enjoy those movies, Andy. Yes, you really yeah, would. Yeah, it's good stuff. Let's keep it arrow. Let's keep it to arrow discussion. <laughs> Anyhow, I like that, and I loved how Oliver's first kill set up the final showdown of this episode. That was a great way to get us sucked into that, to get us fired up for this fight. God, really, I think, brought the season all together in a huge epic showdown, which is what needs to be done on these type of shows. So I thought it was brilliant. I thought the placing of it was perfect. God, it made total sense. It explained the bow and arrow in the episode, too, because that's what he went into the final battle with as well. So that was cool. Exactly. I, I totally agree, except for that I was completely surprised that they killed the Fires character. I was yeah. surprised because I thought he was going to come back as a, you know, like in the books they do where he's 
starts off a nemesis and then ultimately becomes a begrudging ally or something, you know, where he would be possibly, you know, in future seasons forced to work with Oliver. But I think the way that they've gone with the story in this season, it was the only logical thing that he ultimately had to kill him. I was just surprised for, as with another surprise death in this episode, that they shut down future story arcs with that killing. That was the thing that really surprised me. And then I have a quick question. Ferris Air, is that a Green Lantern reference? Green Lantern reference. Yeah, okay. it's Carol Ferris, who is known as Star Sapphire, right, Star Sapphire right. in the Green Lantern comic. It's her company. Okay. I was just wondering if that was actually an intended reference or uh, it's probably obviously an intended reference, but I didn't know if it, we were supposed right. to think Green Lantern tie-in. The logo that they used on the airplane is the same one from the movie. Oh, okay. No, guys. Blake, yeah. yeah, Blake Lively is not going to show up. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. But it, but it, it was a nice touch. Um, For sure. I agree with Nico because Edward Fire is such an important character in the comics. I was kind of surprised as well. But I felt like, yeah. you know, he's been like the big bad off the island this year. You know, like every big bad needs to die at some point. You know, but like the actor wasn't, you know, he, I've been enjoying all of his, his episodes because he made such a wicked villain. We, you know, we, it, it, he has a simple villain that just was right. evil and stuff. And, you know, it was it was cool. So, and and also because Oliver killed him with a bow and arrow and it was just so badass. And, and I, but I felt like the island had such a good wrap up for this season. You know, it, it's it's still kind of on a cliffhanger, but it's still wrapped up in a way that, because there's so many other cliffhangers in this episode that we need to worry about for next season. So I'm glad at least one aspect of the episode was left completely, you know, closed, at least for, unless they do something with in the digital comic in the coming weeks. And, you know, it was well, nice that they stayed. Now go on. I was just going to say, well, if they continue to do Kylan flashbacks, maybe they will show a falling out between Slade and Oliver. That's why I felt like they got rid of Friars to make room for that plot line. Oh, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right on that, Dan. At some point so. it will happen, but I hope that I just want to see Slade as a mentor for a good while. It's I don't want to see him become evil that quick, at least not in season two, but um, but, but well, it was... I mean, if, if he did show up in the city in season two, he'd have to be at that point where it was evil. But yeah, I think in we'll the still... city... In the city, it's okay, yeah. but not on the island just yet. Like year-wise, right. it should I, be I at least think... year, year four. But I to agree. show I... to show it in the city, him being on opposite sides, they would have to show the change Flash. on the flashback to the island. That's what Dan's saying, I think. Yeah. Although in the same season, or are you guys okay with seeing you know a good good slate in on the island and a bad slate uh, in the present? Are you guys fine with that seeing that in the same season, or do we need to explain that or so? Or so I think it needs it to be explained in the same episode. Yeah, or at least uh, yeah. But you could have a couple episode build up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it's going to be over the shadow character. Absolutely, yeah. their falling out is going to have something to do with her. Either her death or Slade being responsible for her death or him just turning against them because he feels the odd man out. Something of that nature, she's going to be at the center of that. All right. Well, let's move on to the tragic death of a beloved character who was played by a beloved actor. Guys, what did you got feel about the death of Tommy Merlin played by the great Colin Donnell, who we're all going to miss, and his final episode as as a whole, as it showed him saving Laurel, finding out about his father's plans, and so on? Well, first of all, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Colin Donnell cut his own CW pilot next year. 
needs just to happen. That out there. But I think they always put him in a position where he had to die. Because after he decided that he was going to kill his father for doing what he was going to do to the Glades, I don't know if we would have bought him descending into becoming a villain. I just don't know if we would have bought it. See, I don't think they would have shown him do that. realizing that his father was the Dark Archer until after he had already been killed by by Oliver. And at that point, it would be the Oliver killing his father right. was enough for him to get over his father having this terrible plan. And at that point, his anger and his path towards the dark side would have been already too far that he would have totally said my father had a reason or he would have rationalized it in some way to then continue his father's work not necessarily blowing up the glades or whatever but to right. stop oliver and to fight against the green and or green arrow not green lantern green arrow <laughs> because he you know because he killed his father and all of that and so i think it would have it would have made sense and they would have just kept that one aspect of tommy finding out about his father and Malcolm's plans and until it was the appropriate time for him to find out. So I thought it was actually still possible until they, they showed that because leading up to this episode, everything played that he could still become that Merlin character. I think it's unfortunate that we're not going to have that Merlin character in a future season be an arch nemesis to Oliver. Now, I was quite surprised that it actually happened because, you know, you can look at it from two aspects. And I, and I, that's something I talked to either Wu or or Michael about this. From episode 16, his fate could have basically been, you know, sealed by that point, either that he was going to become the villain at some point or he was going to die long before that. And I was just, you know, I had always envisioned that this character would become a villain to Oliver because I didn't think that Malcolm was going to stay around, which we will talk about about really soon but i like that he, you know because i talked to somebody else about it and she was happy that if 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 she, if she had to choose between seeing tommy become a villain or just seeing him die and by in his last moment as a hero she she had preferred she would have chose uh, the hero one and i actually agree it, i feel it was much better that we got to you know i'm glad that the death was truly a sacrifice hence the title because he sacrificed himself for laurel and that was great i like that Carl down you know he was a he killed it no pun intended. He would kill it at, with his performance, and so it was yeah. just amazing. So, I think we are gonna miss him definitely. But you know, remember this show does flashbacks. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Now moving on to another death, which is still being discussed despite recent interviews with Mark Guggenheim. What did you guys feel about the supposedly death of Malcolm Merlin, played by John Berryman, after his showdown with both Oliver and Diggle? Do you guys think he's still alive or not? And also, what do you guys think about what Oliver said to Tommy in his last moments? Do you think? Do you guys think it was a lie? Or that he was just because he was on his deathbed? Or was he being honest? Well, I think the first part of this, Malcolm Merlin had to die in this episode, or I guess appear and die in this episode, to wrap up the whole season of Oliver trying to figure out what he was fighting for. You know, he had to defeat, especially after going up against him three times, he had to defeat him the last time. So that made a lot of sense. I was glad that happened. Again, I could say that he's dead, but I could also see a Lazarus pit bringing him back to life due to his mentioning of Nanda Paramat, and there also being rumors that he's connected to the League of Shadows. So I see that happening. I also see Lazarus Pit being used on Tommy as well. Yeah, we discussed that a little bit off microphone, Dan, and I like the idea that Malcolm Merlin could be brought back by the Lazarus Pit. It's a possibility. He definitely died in this episode. He's dead, 
and whether that means he can come back or not through use of the Lazarus pit, that's up for debate and whatever. But definitely Mark Guggenheim told Michael in a tweet that he's dead. He is definitely dead. Now, he's a showrunner and he, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Showrunners lie to keep secrets, but he's also a pretty pretty forthcoming guy in everything that all our interactions with this podcast we've had with him, at least from an outsider's perspective, I can say that. But he says he's dead. I would love to see John Barrowman stay on this show, but also I liked the ending. I liked his death. Yeah. I thought it very well set up the story. So I don't want them to just bring him back to bring him back. It needs to have a legitimate reason for it. Now, Oliver lied to Tommy so that he knew Tommy was dying and he did not want Tommy to know that he had killed his father before he died. He wanted to ease his suffering. And so he told him a lie. That's yeah. it's as easy as that. Yeah. Now I have some things to add okay first of all listeners when you guys hear the guys talking about lazarus piss that is something that is supernatural still and it's not it's not it's which is something that the show doesn't have right now so if they use the lazarus piss in the future it, it will have to be at the time when they actually introduce a supernatural you know aspect of, of for green arrow so as as of now there's no way of bringing them back however you can bring back the actors for flashbacks but like but i like what nico said i just don't like seeing you know i like the ending as well and also, I'm going to have to defend myself because people have been like, oh, Andy, you're such a hypocrite. You love John Berman, but you're still so, still so happy to see him dead. Look, I'm a John Berman, John Berman fanatic. I can notice his freaking eyebrows when he's wearing a mask. Yeah, that's how crazy I am. And I just felt like as, as they've been building up since episode nine, when, they, when Oliver and him fought each other, they've been building up his death this entire season. And it actually yeah. made sense to kill him off. I don't hate John Berman. I freaking love him. I would. No, I'm going to go there. But I think, it, it's, I think it was a good twist to kill both the Merlins. Because basically, as of now, there's no Merlin in the show. There's no ne- the arch nemesis for Oliver at this point, unless they bring in the, so- the so-called real Arthur slash real Merlin the Dark Archer and or if the guy in an apartment that trained Malcolm was perhaps either somebody from the League of Shadows or perhaps another Merlin relative who knows but I felt it was the showdown was epic I just loved Dig, you know Diggle and Oliver fighting Malcolm together was just Batman Robin you guys can you guys can suck it because they their showdown was more epic than any of your battles that I've seen in comics or movies or whatever and so on it was just fantastic and the big props to James Bamford and the Southern team and in down in Vancouver and so on doing these amazing fights yes Michael did uh, get a confirmation from Mark Guggenheim that Malcolm is dead, and he has confirmed in other interviews as well with TV Guide, Huffington Post, and so on that Malcolm is. It looks like he is dead. They, they he did say something that oh, there's a little hint, there's a moment in season two that will give you an answer to that. But it seems that he is pretty dead. But I I'm, I don't mind flashbacks at all. That could be fun. Now let's go to some quick tidbits before we wrap it up. What did you guys feel about Quentin Lance and Felicity, Felicity Smoke as she did assist them the whole way? Heroic moment in the episode. Both Roy and Fia and Roy's heroic moment in the episode. Morris decision to go public and reveal about the undertaking and the finale as a whole. Well, real quick to answer that on my side of things. Felicity's speech to Quentin about how the vigilante is a hero was great. Come, I was glad to see Lance come around at the end of the episode. Guy kind of give that whole speech about Kyle saying me the people are more important than his feelings about the hood. I thought those were two very big moments for him. Kind of showed his development over the season. Because Wells Felicity, 
Cause for Thea and Roy's heroic moments, it was great to see them capable of being vigilantes. But I was glad that they pumped the brakes on this plot line just enough so we could be, how should I put it? So they would take away from Diggle kind of Felicity. I felt if they had joined the team at this point, got the end of the episode, that opportunity for more stories to tell about Diggle and Felicity would be taken away. So I'm glad that they kept it that way. And also, um, Moira's decision to go out in public uh, was a very good one. I think it was a good part with her character. I'm kind of curious what they're going to do with her next season, because I thought she was going to die in this episode, but that didn't happen. And I also say I'm envisioning Walter coming back to help Thea, because at this point, she really doesn't have a parent. Yeah, I like that last point, Dan. I do see Walter rejoining the story by becoming the parental figure to Thea, because she still does need somebody at home. And it could be... Oliver, obviously it could be Oliver, but I think Walter's going to feel a responsibility to Thea because he has been her surrogate father for the last five years. And I think there's genuine, there's, I don't think, I know there's genuine love there between them. And so I do see him coming back in that respect. I like that idea. I was a little bit, I don't know, surprised to see Thea show up in the glades. I know it's within her character, but I kind of felt like it was pointless in the way it it played out because she came, helped him get out, and then he ends up leaving her to stay and fight, and then she just leaves, you know? And so it was like, well, <laughs> your your whole point in coming to the Glades was made was nullified by then leaving him again. But it, it did show his heroicness. And so for from a Roy standpoint, it was great. It was absolutely exactly what we needed to see happen. And very much him starting down that heroic path that I've been calling for. I have liked the Roy character more and more every time we've seen him because I did say that I really did not like his introduction and I stick by that statement. But every week it gets better and better. So in that sense, this was a very good, almost heroic introduction of Roy's character. And then finally with Quentin Lance and Felicity Smoke's story i liked this team up i liked that it started with him arresting her and then letting her go and then working together that it was the whole spectrum of possibilities in this one episode it worked i think it shows that lance is going to have a lot of trouble being the head of the task force to bring down the vigilante now that he knows the vigilante saved not only him but his daughter and tried to save half the city so i think it's going to bring him on to Team Arrow's side, and he will work much like a Commissioner Gordon character going forward. And I think he will be the liaison between the police and the Arrow team because he will trust them now. And it won't be smooth. There'll be a lot of hiccups. There'll be times he has to go after them hard, and he won't know who Green Arrow is or who the hood is. He will only know that he saved his life one time and saved his family's life and tried to save the city. And that's what he's ultimately doing every night, trying to save the city. And he will eventually, right before he dies, he will learn that it's Oliver and it'll blow his mind. But then he'll die. Yeah. I'm, I, I agree with both of you. I, you know, I've been having my issues with Quentin Lance throughout this, this series. But now, Finally, I love this character. You know, I like the role he is in now. You know, it's not no more about, oh, Oliver, you, you killed my daughter and blah, 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 blah. And so uh, it's now actually, you know, he actually, you know, got to his sense and he's actually, you know, I think I like the fact that he's going to be sort of like a Commissioner Gordon character because I think Green Arrow kind of needs that. And it's not people going to be like, oh, my God, rips off Batman some more. No, no, it's not kind of a ripper because it's 
quite different here. <laughs> and um, I like that he and Felicity teamed up, and it was it was awesome. Fionn Roy, you know, great speedy illusion, loved it. Morris' decision to go in public, it was sort of a surprise because I really thought she was going to die in this episode. But you know what? If I can have more Susanna Farms next season or at all, I'm fine by that because I love her. And it was, but overall, this, the thing that the finale really did was that was so fantastic was basically put every character in danger. Anybody could have died and we didn't know who it was. You know, at some point we thought Laura yeah. was going to die. Everybody. And that's like, how often can, do, do you do, can you manage, uh, you know, succeed with that? In a season finale, especially your first season finale, you know, so props to the writers, definitely. And they tied everything together very, very nicely in an epic conclusion. Indeed. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to all of these characters now, you know, because in the fall, because they have said that the show is going to make a time job five years late, five months later. Uh, yeah. After the, the events of a Sacrifice. But overall, mind-blowing first season finale. This is going to be memorable for years now in Arrow's episode history. And that is all for this season of the Arrow Rundown section. Make sure to listen to our spin-off podcast, Lomba Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is hosted by the great Michael J. Petty and the great Wu-Wes Kim, where they discuss the big finale. Stay tuned for more information about the second season as Comic-Con is just around the corner, which I will be attending. So follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Google+, and so on, and check out our website as well to keep updated. Arrow returns this fall in October on Wednesday night, 8, 7 central. On the CW. And we just declared Arrow as our favorite, at least my favorite finale for this year of television. So kudos to them on that as well. Now we're going to wrap up our discussion this week with the great two-hour first season finale episode of Elementary that proved one of my crazier crackpot theories 100% correct, despite everyone telling me last week and actually getting me to say I was wrong. But my genius was proven this week with the episodes The Woman and Heroin. Flashbacks revealed what led to Sherlock's downfall into addiction, because the reemergence of Irene Adler leaves Sherlock stunned. And once again, the mysterious Moriarty has his sights set on Holmes and Watson. This week's two-hour elementary basically served as a standalone movie. While there were skillful references to previous episodes woven in, the appearance of Irene, the unmasking of Moriarty, and Moriarty's conquer were skillfully incorporated into a one contained arc. And I predict fans who are trying to get their friends into this show will recommend that if nothing else, they watch this finale. My theory of Irene being Moriarty was proven correct this week, despite everyone insisting that I was taking crazy pills and even convincing me that it would not be true after last week's episode showed my original genius to be true. So while that wasn't so shocking, it was almost hilarious how much trouble Irene took to stage her own kidnapping, an elaborate backstory about a flower on her pillow every night and the man wearing a scary mask. The backstory between Irene and Sherlock was very well done this week. I did think that making Moriarty a woman and collapsing her with the Irene character elegantly grounded the rather comic book aspect of Moriarty versus Sherlock in relatable human emotions. That Moriarty keeps withholding from outright killing Sherlock because Moriarty admires him as a peer has been the prevailing logic for their adversarial admiring relationship in previous reboots. To take it a step further and make them sort of a tragic love story only raises the stakes in this iteration. I did love that Sherlock relinquished the reins of the investigation to Watson and focused on being with his resurrected love, leaving Watson with some ultimate final exam for her apprenticeship and leaving us with scene after scene of Natalie Dormer and Johnny Lee Miller. 
The fact Watson solved Moriarty and convinced Sherlock to let Moriarty feel that she had won, so she dropped her guard, and the confidence Sherlock showed in following her advice, not to mention leaving the Irene Adler case in her hands, has made Elementary's Watson perhaps the most respected and equitable Watson of any Holmes reboot I've ever seen. Lucy Liu's Watson is not written as a feeble-minded audience proxy who's there to constantly exclaim, My word, Holmes, how did you ever know? No, she's quickly picking up Sherlock's wisdom and techniques and acting as a trusted and equal partner. This episode merely exemplified this perfectly. All in all, this was an amazing first season that ended with one of the best season finales of the year. And that concludes our reviews for this week. Now let's move on to the voicemail section. The call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about How I Met Your Mother's season finale and the reveal of The Mother. Hey Nico and Dan, it's your buddy Wu S. Kim with his thoughts on the 8th season finale of How I Met Your Mother entitled Something New. First of all, I loved this episode overall. I really thought Carter Bays and Craig Thomas did a fantastic job writing this episode. I also loved the interactions between Robin and Barney and this couple in the restaurant. Love how this couple was so big of jerks to to Robin and Barney, and I loved how pretentious they were. Loved Robin using the same trick that she thought Ted used on her in the second season finale with the with the ring and the champagne glass loved Barney getting hit in the back of the head with with the door constantly which ironically enough I think has happened to my friends a couple times so it's funny to actually see that on TV loved the swerve with Marshall being approved for judgeship and I love and I love that line from the one guy when Marshall says I'm not good at making decisions and he goes do you really want to be a judge I really thought that was one of my one of my favorite lines in the entire episode. Loved the the whole mystery on whether or not Marshall will go to Rome with Lily or or go back to New York to be a judge. And I have to think Marshall and Lily are going to be apart at least until the first hiatus. Like I have the, I have it in my mind that before we go on the Christmas break next season, Marshall and Lily will probably be reunited. Lily's probably going to move back to Rome, and then they're probably going to find their house that we've seen in the future and settle, and settle in. Speaking of settling in, I understand Ted's wanting to move to Chicago. I thought it was a nice swerve because it was something that we didn't see coming, which is basically what a swerve is. You're not supposed to see it coming. And I never really thought about it until this episode, until Josh Rander brought it up. In that scene where he tells Lily why he's moving to Rome. Lily and Marshall are going to be gone to Rome. And he's going to be all by himself watching his best friend Barney. A guy who he never thought was going to get married. Let alone before him. And he's going to get married to the woman that he's always thought he belonged with. I, lo- I loved his performance throughout this episode. Because Josh Brandner, his gift is to... Is to Say emotional dialogue, say heartfelt dialogue, say almost sad dialogue with 
but without making it sound too weepy and too whiny. I mean, he is weepy and whiny at some points, but the, that's mostly to be funny. In this, like in the pilot episode when he tells Robin what he wants out of life, is very heartfelt and very real. And I love that about his performance throughout the episode. Loved his interactions with Lily. Like I always have stated to my friends, yeah, he can talk to Marshall about emotional stuff. Yeah, he can talk to Barney about his love troubles. But Lily is the heart of this series. She's got the biggest heart of anyone on the show. And I think that's why he needed to talk to Lily about this and this episode more than anyone else. Even though he didn't intend to undoing it, I felt it was right. Also, mainly because Lily's been responsible for sabotaging Ted's relationships ever since the first season or even before the series began. So I thought that was a great continuity thing the writers did. Loved the whole backstory about where the locker really is. Nice to see what Robin was doing in the days before, before the Namaste retreat when Ted was supposed to marry Stella. Loved... Loved the reaction from Ted when he found out where the locket was and what he was going to do with it. And I loved Allison Hannigan's thing of telling Ted to be careful and telling Ted to watch out with what his intentions are when he goes to the wedding. Loved that last shot of the episode. Not Well, not the very last shot. I'll get to that in a sec. But the last shot of everyone... Looking to like looking towards the future, whether it's Robin and Barney in the limo being dr dr driven by Ranji, which I also thought was a really nice callback to everybody in their prospective vehicles looking toward the future, and then, and this is what what I think all How I Met Your Mother fans have been waiting for since the first season, the slow reveal up to reveal the mother. By the way, I have followed this woman on Twitter. She sounds very awesome. I saw her a little bit on 30 Rock, but it wasn't so memorable that it that I I recognized her immediately. I loved the whole idea of the audience sees the mother before anyone else does. I like the, the casting of this actress mainly because even though I've not seen her in much, she looks like Lindsay Fouché's mother. She could be David David Henry. David Henry's mother. She does look like she could have mothered the children in the future. I really like that continuity thing. And on a on a on a funny side note, it does look like like her and Lily Lily have this same shoe size. So I think Lily will have no problem borrowing this woman's shoes in the future. I read on IGN something, and it's not really a spoiler. It's something that they could do, and this comes from Craig Thomas, one of the creators of the show. He said there's a possibility that the the other members of the gang, Robin, Lily, Marshall, and Barney, will meet this woman before Ted does, and the first half of the season will be us knowing more about the mother before Ted actually meeting her. I don't know if they're going to do that or not, but overall, this... This one episode made me so hopeful for Ted and so hopeful for the ninth and final season. I can't wait for it. I can't wait until September. I hope they really do a really good job wrapping this season up. And I think they will, Baze and Thomas. Well, listen to my buddy Michael J. Petty and I as Longbow Hunters. 
because we have a big wrap-up episode for the final episode of Arrow this season. And we'll, I'll see you across the airwaves. Bye, guys. Thanks, Wu, again for your great comments this week. We're sorry you weren't able to join us for a discussion. That's on us. But next time, yeah. we'll make sure it works. We look forward sure. to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners in the coming weeks. So we'll have some comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. Yeah, and with that, we're going to go into the closing for this week's episode. So, Nico, tell what's, people what's going on. I mean, it's going to be a lot less than we've had the past two weeks, and we thank you guys for sticking with us despite those very long episodes. On next week's episode, thankfully, the TV schedule continues yes. to wind down as we've already had most of our season finales as we will be reviewing Game of Thrones and Psych. We will also round things out with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on Simpsons, Family Guy, Revolution, Defiance, Warehouse 13, and Grimm, and probably some more. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on the website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Also, while you're waiting for our next ATA episode to come out, you can check out our spinoff podcast, ATA Retro Reviews, which covers shows that were canceled or went out on their own terms. We have Across the Airways DC Nation podcast dedicated to covering all the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans, including movies, cartoon shows, comics, and much more. And also, we have ATA Longball Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which covers the hit CW TV series in much more detail. Because that's a show hosted by our friends on the podcast, Michael J. Petty and Wookie. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us by visiting our newly updated and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. You can also click the button on our page to like our Facebook. And through doing that, you will stay updated on our podcast episode releases and also be able to follow all the entertainment news that Nico reports on during our Across the Airways episodes. For that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Twitter is Across the Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just Across the Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, you can give us your thoughts or feedback on any of the shows we cover or our podcast in general. So uh, if you're interested, do that. Also, if you'd like, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for all sorts of Across the Airwaves events, as well as upcoming movies. Also available on our YouTube channel is a playlist of the DC Nation shorts that is shown during the Saturday morning programming block on Cartoon Network. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you could contact us, you could download our Podcast Box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you could download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace to get that same content. So again, that's our podcast episode and ways you could contact us. So, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Luke Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustek. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us on this show, and hope you enjoyed all the finales. See ya. Wondered whatever became of me I'm living on the air in Cincinnati Cincinnati WKRP Jeffster lives, man!
now return to our regularly scheduled program.